Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Back now with that interview from Sunni Previn, breaking her silence about her relationship with husband Woody Allen and her adoptive mother, Mia Farrow, who was partners with Allen when they met. Paula Ferris here with a story from New York Magazine. And Paula, some blistering revelations here. Blistering is an understatement. Sunni Previn claims that Mia Farrow spanked her with a hairbrush, slapped her across the face, and called her stupid when asked if she had anything warm to say about Pharaoh, who is her adoptive mother. Previn says she cannot come up with a single positive recollection. It was the relationship that quickly became tabloid fodder. Soon Yi Previn, the then 21-year-old adopted daughter of actress Mia Farrow, was caught in an affair with Pharaoh's longtime boyfriend, Woody Allen. Previn and Allen married in 1997. She's largely stayed out of the limelight, but now, 20 years later, she's breaking her silence in a New York Magazine interview, defending her husband, who's accused of molesting Pharaoh's then seven-year-old daughter, Dylan, back in 1992. It's something he has repeatedly denied. And now Previn is taking aim at her adoptive mother, telling New York Magazine what's happened to Woody is so upsetting, so unjust, Mia has taken advantage of the Me Too movement and paraded Dylan as a victim. As I played with the toy train, I was sexually assaulted. He's lying and he's been lying for so long. Dylan Farrow firing back overnight, telling ABC News, Woody Allen molested me when I was seven years old, part of a documented pattern of inappropriate, abusive touching that led a judge to say there was no evidence that I was coached and that it was unsafe for me to be in Woody Allen's presence. No one is parading me around as a victim. I continued to be an adult woman, making a credible allegation unchanged for two decades, backed up by evidence. There were two investigations into Dylan's claims that were launched against Allen, including one by the New York State Department of Social Services. The investigators concluding, though, that no credible evidence was found that Dylan has been abused or maltreated. What have you done to its eyes? Previn also claims that her adopted mother, Mia, who started movies like Rosemary's Baby and adopted her when she was six years old, physically and emotionally abused her, saying Mia wasn't maternal to me from the get-go. And it's really hard to imagine, but I really can't come up with a pleasant memory. Sunny was put down, minimized, made fun of, and Mia threatened to take her to an insane asylum. The author of this article is Daphne Merkin. She's been friends with Woody Allen for four decades, and that's something that she disclosed in this profile of the couple for the magazine. She felt that it was time for her to tell her story, that she was the person who hadn't spoken in all this. Maybe you can adopt a child. Pharaoh and Allen shared the big screen in his film Hannah and Her Sisters. They'd been together for 12 years when, in 1992, Pharaoh discovered nude photos of a then 21-year-old Soon Yi in his home. In the end, the one thing I happened with you is, well, you have a adult daughter. 
Farrow says that she and Alan were still a couple at the time, but Priven and Alan say they believe the pair was over. Priven telling the magazine she and Alan were like two magnets, very attracted to each other. She says Mia was never kind to me, never civil, but with Alan, she says she felt valued. Now, we reached out to Mia Farrow. She is not commenting. However, seven of her nine living children tell ABC News they, quote, stand by our mom. None of us ever witnessed anything other than compassionate treatment in our home. And Dylan Farrow firing back at New York Magazine, saying the article included falsehoods and fabrications, adding that the idea of letting a friend of an alleged predator write a one-sided piece attacking the credibility of his victim is disgusting. The magazine responding, telling us, this is a story about Sunni Priven and puts forward her perspective on what happened in her family. But she and Woody Allen have now been married for 20 years. But I encourage everybody, if you have some time, read this article. It is fascinating. She was ready to break her silence. And wow, did mm. she ever. I met with uh, the members of the Connecticut State Police, instructed them to continue their investigation. I said, I want this child evaluated. I wanted some type of opinion as to whether or not my bringing her into the criminal justice system, putting her on the stand, in any way would traumatize her. And I want to know whether there are any impediments to the child's ability to take the stand and testify in court. So I suggested the Yale Child Sexual Abuse Clinic to do the examination. They were going to assist me insofar as determining whether or not there were any impediments as to the child's ability to perceive, recall, and relate. The Yale New Haven team was led by Dr. John Leventhal, who at that time was the director of the Yale New Haven Hospital Child Sexual Abuse Clinic. The team also included two social workers, Julia Hamilton and Jennifer Sawyer. Records show that Sawyer and Hamilton interviewed Dylan nine times over a three-month period. I would meet with some adults who would show me an anatomically correct doll and ask me where Daddy touched me. And I would repeat the story over and over and over again. It was grueling and it was intense and I hated it. Their examination went on for seven months. And then I received a call that the Yale Child Sexual Abuse Clinic made a decision and I am given the bottom line conclusion that the child is unreliable, untrustworthy, and or that Mia Farrow was a fabricator of this incident. The report stated there were inconsistencies in Dylan's statements and that she had difficulty distinguishing fantasy from reality. The report also stated that Dylan's accusations were likely reinforced and encouraged by her mother, who was enraged with Mr. Allen. Without notifying Frank Mako, who had commissioned the report, Yale New Haven met with both Mia Farrow and Woody Allen and informed them of the results of the report. Next thing I know, the Yale New Haven team presented the findings to Allen, the suspect of the investigation, and allowed him to announce the results publicly on the steps of the hospital. 
they've come to a decision that um, I can say is an accurate one. Certainly, I never, ever abused my daughter. There was no sexual abuse that ever took place. And that, um, that the, it was either, it was either a, an imagined thing or a concocted thing. What do you think it was? Why do you call the accused and have a press conference on the steps of the hospital to, quote, clear him when you don't give it to the state attorney to do that? He was the one who commissioned it. It wasn't their purview to do that. Today's report, if it is as Allen describes it, seems to remove any possibility he'd face criminal charges. The report also says that the child may have made the story up, but the experts also allow for the possibility in their report that Farrell may have coached the child to tell this story. In the report, the experts recommend that Farrell receive therapy now for what it characterized as her, quote, extremely disturbed, unquote, relationship with seven-year-old Dylan. I had to come forward and say, wait a minute. I find nothing indicating that Mia Farrell is in any way fabricating, controlling, or manipulating this child. There's nothing to show us that. Um, I, I just want to say that, um, that I will always stand by my children. Did you make it up? Did you make up that story? The Cows, Context of White Supremacy, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, September 23rd, 2021. So I have been told uh, this is our eighth study session on Woody Allen's apropos of nothing. Uh, We are almost done. Uh, I think we should have at least one more section left. Uh, kind of depends on how much we get through uh, next week, but almost done uh, with this bio and then moving off uh, to our new book. Uh, the two brief snippets that we heard at the beginning, one, a news report from some years back uh, when Sunyi Allen, uh, Woody's wife or Sunyi Preven, excuse me, when she wanted to speak out to defend her husband and say categorically that there was nothing incorrect about their uh, arrangement. And in fact, that Mia Farrow was not cool. She didn't have any uh, positive memories of her time uh, being adopted by Mia Farrow. I've said consistently as we have been reading this transracial adoption, so-called transracial abduction. When white people go out and steal non-white children from anywhere on the planet, that is an act of white supremacy racism. No caping for Mia Farrow here. And the second, and, and even before we move forward, racial masochism. Mia Farrow suspected racist, Woody Allen suspected racist. All of that said, victims of white supremacy frequently are brain trashed. I uh, call it Stockholm Central. I mean, this might be a really bad example of Stockholm uh, Stockholm Central. When I say bad, meaning an intense illustration of Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, when you have a captor, a victim who identifies with their oppressor. Soon you didn't identify with uh, Mia Farrow, but it seems like that definitely happened with Woody Allen. Magnetic attraction to this white man who is 35 years older than her. 
Anywho, the next audio segment that we heard uh, from the documentary film Alan vs. Pharaoh, we heard a brief snippet from that at the very beginning. And in fact, in that snippet, we heard from Gloria Steinem, uh, who Woody Allen mentioned last week and saying, man, she got this one wrong and all these liberals, uh, white liberals running around here and thinking that they're doing something progressive and they all just beating up on old poor Woody Allen and calling me names and saying that I'm bashing old Mia Farrow. Uh, Gloria Steinem was in the documentary and she said, hey, they let me know about this black social worker, Paul Williams, who was investigating Woody Allen about these charges. And she said, I believed Paul Williams. I didn't think he was lying. Uh, Paul Williams ended up having to go to court to get his job back. He was fired uh, for investigating this case, saying that he believed uh, Dylan uh, and saying, hey, I think uh, what Dylan is saying is accurate. I don't think she was coached. I think she's being truthful in reporting that Woody Allen molested, molested her when she was seven. And Gloria Steinman says, yeah, I covered this. I went to the trial. I thought Paul Williams was believable. And we said, ah, she got this one wrong. We go to the second uh, segment from the documentary. So you get to hear about the Yale New Haven report, which allegedly exonerated him, even though you heard from the prosecuting attorney saying, wait a minute, uh, I am the one. We are the ones who do exonerating. They can just make their report and give their opinion, their view uh, on this matter. You also heard the prosecuting attorney, uh, a white man saying, hey, I did not think uh, that Dylan had been coached or that she was lying uh, in some sort of way, that this was all a charade. Uh, he goes on to say he thought I, th I felt there was enough evidence that we could have charged Woody out. It would have just been a matter of do I think we're going to be able to win this case if we go to court. Different story entirely, especially if you got a powerful white man. Anyway, we will go ahead and get started. Woody Allen's apropos of nothing. White people do not care about children. Audio segment one. After Another Woman, I participated in a movie called New York Stories, which was three short films, each by a different director. Francis Coppola did one, Scorsese did one, and me. Suddenly, I'm involved with these two great filmmakers. There's a photo of the three of us outside the Plaza Hotel, and it should be captioned, What's wrong with this picture? Two of my all-time favorite movie makers and my short comedy piece in Amid Their Offerings. I met a number of great directors, and while I can't say I ever got close to any of them, I did enjoy the brief time I spent with each. I dined with Bergman and had a number of long phone conversations where we just gabbed. He had the same insecurities we all have, that he'd show up on the set and suddenly he seized with panic because he wouldn't know where to put the camera. He was, I felt, the best filmmaker of my lifetime, and he had the same fear I had. If he doesn't know where to put the camera to make the most effective shot, how would I ever know? But somehow, despite the anxieties, we manage always to find the right spot. Or at least he does. Bergman invited me to his island a few times, but I always ducked it. I worshipped the guy as an artist. But who wants to take a tiny plane to a Russian-owned island where there's just sheep and yogurt for lunch? I'm not that dedicated. I met Truffaut at Sue Menger's house. He and I were both taking language lessons from the same guy. Him to learn English, me to learn French. Consequently, each of us only knew a few words of the other's language. We were like ships passing in the night, the great language barrier reef. But he liked my movies, and needless to say, I was crazy about his. I worked briefly with Godard, 
met and dined with René, spent much time with Antonioni, who was a great friend of Carlo de Palma's, and a cold, superb artist. Humorless, but brilliant. He told me he had an idea for comedy, which he told to Jack Nicholson, because he wanted him for the role. And Nicholson howled. Antonioni said, you think it's that funny? Nicholson said, no, I'm laughing because you think that's a comedy. I met Tati, who advised me to save my money, lest I wind up in the old actor's home, where he had just come from, visiting a friend. I never met Fellini, but we had a nice long phone conversation. Picture this. I'm in Rome for a promotion of some silly opus of mine, and um, at the hotel, things are hectic with interviews and press, and the phone rings. My assistant gets in and says, it's Fellini. Having never met him or said a word to him, I figured it was a faker. I told her to brush him. She did. Moments later, he calls again. It's Fellini, she says. I say, get a number. I'll call him back, figuring I'll verify it's Fellini's phone number before I do. He's calling from a street phone, my assistant tells me. Now I know it's a scam, so I say, dust him. Five minutes later, he calls again, and now I want to get rid of this pest for good. But he gives his home phone number to my assistant and says, call him tomorrow morning. Now I'm starting to feel a little nervous because I'm thinking, have I brushed one of my film idols, one of the cinema's greatest artists? Could that have really been Fellini? And I was terribly rude to him. But why would he be phoning a schnook like me, whom he's never met and from a phone booth? Anyhow, it turns out when I checked with the Carlo de Palmas, it was him. So as I was leaving Rome early, I made sure to phone him before I left. <clears throat> naturally waking him up. So I find myself on the phone with a very sleepy film genius. Of course, I'm embarrassed and turned stoplight red. We had a long talk. He liked my movies or faked it well for a guy just awakened and felt our backgrounds had a lot in common. When I left there, I vowed to call and see him next time I came to town, but by then he had died, perhaps sensing I was serious. They're all gone, Truffaut, René, Antonioni, De Sica, Kazan. At least Godard is still alive, but he always was a nonconformist. The whole scene has changed, and all the guys I wanted to impress when I was young have faded into the abyss that seems to be out there. It's about here I start to wallow in Weltschmerz, but in an effort not to panic the reader, I'll get back to Scorsese and Coppola and the three short films we did. Mia was the lead female in mine, and I played the male lead. Sven shot it. It was cute, and I held my own, contributing a tale about a hectoring mother who vanishes at a magic show to the relief of her son, only to reappear over Manhattan in the sky and bully him as a public embarrassment. Mia played the shiksa, who dumps me, and I wind up with the more parentally satisfying Semite, Julie Kavner. A good time was had by all, except the people who put the money up for the picture. I think it was Disney, and I think it proved once again that anthology movies are not good bets at the box office. Enter Crimes and Misdemeanors, or as cute little Moses used to call it, Crimes and Misdemeanors. Again, trouble in the script. The film had two halves, a dramatic half and a more comic, satirical one. The murder half with Marty Landau went great and was a pleasure to shoot. Marty came in to read for the brother of the role he eventually played. He read the script and said he wanted to play the murderer. We said, the we is me and Julia Teller. You think you can? Like all actors, he said yes. And he could. And he did. 
Of all the actors I ever worked with, Marty read my dialogue exactly the way I heard it in my mind. Every nuance and inflection on the money. Later, I learned he grew up a few blocks from me, so we both spoke the same way. I regretted that I had two interwoven stories. I felt it all should have been Marty's story expanded, my story dumped, especially when I got off on the wrong foot. In the movie where I play a documentary filmmaker who is doing a worthy documentary on old age homes as opposed to the lucrative garbage TV shows my brother-in-law is turning out, which make him rich and respected. Not too far into shooting, I noticed my half of the interwoven plot was like a bite from the tsetse fly. It caused slumber. My brother-in-law was played by Alan Alda, whom I worked with several times. Whatever you need to make a character interesting and a scene work, Alan not only delivers, but also adds much more of his own that elevates the film. He's always real, whether you need a villain, a romantic lead, or a comedian. A wonderfully gifted actor. So after shooting tons of material of me and Mia at an old age home, we scrapped that idea and I decided the documentary I'm making should be about the egotistical character Alan is playing. As soon as that expensive plot reversal came to me, the movie took off. Although if I had to do it over, I'd still 86 myself and make a longer film about the Landau half. Mia was very good as the beautiful TV worker seduced by Alan Alda's phony fame and success. I got to work with Angelica Houston, a treat whom I later worked with again. She was very powerful as Marty's emotional mistress. I had seen her in movies before and fully expected her to be great, and she was. She was much taller than me, and when I kissed her in the second film we did together, I made sure she was seated. But she could play comic scenes and romantic scenes and play the unraveling victim whom Marty has bumped off all beautifully. The film had personal meaning for me because half was dramatic and I confirmed for myself I could handle serious material. So much for that well-meaning magazine that had once described me as an anonymous little giggle merchant. When Crimes and Misdemeanors finished, I had the following idea, and it came to me thusly. Gene Dominion had always been big on alternative medicine, which I was not a fan of. She visited a Chinese acupuncturist all the time who gave her herbs and vile potions to swallow for a plump consideration. I had it down as vintage quackery, a hustle on a par with Ricard Monti. She was always washing her vegetables in vinegar and knocking back a noxious beverage out of the opening scene of Macbeth. If it wasn't bubbling, it should have been. Well, there came a time when I began to suffer from a rather harmless curse, but an annoying one, Shalazians, little bumps on the eyelids that drove one crazy and needed to be soaked endlessly or popped with a needle. I won't bore you with the details, but after months and months of me trying to get rid of this plague by conventional means, Jean said to try her doctor just once. He's magical, she said. He will rid me of my affliction. I couldn't bear the thought of succumbing to her silly mumbo-jumbo, but with the passage of time and more suffering, I said I'd give it one try. Especially when she said he would come to my house and I didn't have to walk up the rickety stairs to his Chinatown office and pass the dead ducks hanging splayed in the ground floor windows. And so, to my chic Fifth Avenue penthouse one Saturday, comes Jean, bringing an Asian gentleman, looking hoary with wisdom and direct from central casting. 
I laid my sob story on him, and he looked at my eye. Gland is blocked up, he said. I agreed. Needs pussycat whisker. Pardon me? Whisker of pussycat, he repeated, and opening a silver case which held several pussycat whiskers, he extracted one. I tried to keep from dialing the bunco squad then and there as he approached me. Deftly, he inserted the whisker in my tear duct and swabbed it back and forth, and I sat there calmly, trying not to lose my composure and press the panic button. Finished, he said, pulling it out. All better. I laid his fee on him, and he exited. Only thing missing was the sound of a gong. Of course, I was not better, and when I told my eye doctor the story, he said, don't ever let anyone put anything, much less a cat's whisker, in my tear duct. And that is how I came to write Alice. Suddenly, I'm directing Key Luke, who I sat enthralled by as a kid watching him play Charlie Chan's number one son. Alice was pretty to look at, a triumph for Santo Loquesto. Poor Santo, this design genius, who I always stick with insurmountable problems and no money, and he takes the no money and surmounts all the problems. And his work is stunning. Example, I'm doing a movie that takes place in New York, in Jersey, in Los Angeles, in small towns across America, on Hollywood studio lots, in hills, across farmlands, all in the 1930s. All period signs, cars, buildings, stores, and I stick Santo with a tiny budget, and oh, I don't want to leave Manhattan, not for a single day. I'm not up to it yet, but if you haven't seen Sweet and Lowdown with Sean Penn, check it out. Santo accomplished all of the above, and he made Alice look very pretty. And there was that little red hat we grabbed off a counter at Bloomingdale's. Jeff Curlin, our costume designer, had the same problem as Santo. No money to work with, but please give us a cast beautifully costumed from the 1920s, 30s, or 40s. The dresses, the gowns, a hundred extras to go with the sailors and soldiers, a different hundred to go in the nightclub scene with the gangsters and showgirls. By the way, you have even less money because we needed more to spend on extra Danish for the catering table. But he did it. When it came time to shoot, there were all the principals and extras dressed in 1920s clothes with cloche hats and flapper skirts, guys in their raccoon coats. Jeff had a great sense of humor, a funny character who was one of the few people I liked to have around when I cast, when I saw dailies, because his feedback was meaningful. He was good to agree and disagree with, and his buoyancy was a welcome relief from the hangdog gloom that originated with me and trickled down to my... Loyal Gandhi dancers. On Alice, I first worked with Alec Baldwin, who respectfully kept calling me Mr. Allen. I first noticed Alec and married to the mob and said, who is that guy? He's amazing. And amazing, he's remained. Alec is really quite a phenomenon when you think of it. He plays both ends of the spectrum superbly. He can be as dramatically powerful as you like, as slyly amusing, as romantic, as broadly funny, and all first-rate. Alice seemed to me an okay picture. It's a definite notch below Citizen Kane. If you go in liking me as a human being, you could enjoy it. If you think I'm in the wrong racket, this will confirm it. At this point in my life, I paused. However briefly to act in another person's movie, Jeff Katzenberg asked me if I would act opposite Bette Midler in a film Paul Mazursky was going to make called Scenes from a Mall. 
It paid a lot, but the real pull, as I mentioned earlier, was Mazursky. He had just won an award for Enemies, a love story, and I liked his work in general. We met to discuss it. He was nervous, he confessed, meeting me. Why? I'll never know. He was a fine director, a good actor, a terrific raconteur, smart and well-read. I was a quiet, polite, decent filmmaker, but no Kurosawa, no actor of real reputation, that I should inspire nervous tension in anyone, much less Mazursky. I think I may make people feel awkward because I feel awkward, so I inadvertently put them at sixes and sevens. I was certainly willing to put myself in Mazursky's hands and obey the director. It meant flying to California and Jeff Katzenberg, knowing I didn't like leaving Manhattan, especially at 40,000 feet, said he'd provide me with the Disney plane. I'd never flown privately before, and I asked if that meant after the shooting in California, they'd take me back home. Katzenberg laughed and said, of course. I always liked Jeff Katzenberg, got along well with him, and found him to be a film executive of his word, usually an oxymoron in Hollywood. And so I flew to California on the Disney Gulfstream, a G2, if I'm not mistaken, and all the flight safety instructions regarding seatbelts and life vests came over the loudspeaker from Mickey Mouse. How unsettling, I thought. There's a rodent at the controls. Mazursky worked the opposite of me. He rehearsed around a table, then on a floor with tape marks, then at the actual locations... He planned every single shot and knew exactly what he was going to shoot each morning. I, by contrast, never rehearsed, never planned anything, often had no idea what I was shooting till I came on the set and was handed the pages for the day. Sometimes I didn't even own a script. This was contrary to how Gordon Willis worked, but we liked each other and both kind of compromised our instinctive way to work with me doing most of the compromising. With Carlo de Palma, it was a different story. Carlo was a great photographer, but totally undisciplined, and was like me. He liked to come on the set and feel the light and mosey around, and eventually his gut told him where to go and what lights to use. So we both arrived, Carlo and I, Carlo sipping his morning cup of beer at 7 a.m., and I'd mosey, and he'd mosey, and I'd say, what scene is this again? The meter would be moseying at 150 grand a day. And finally, I'd feel what I wanted to do. Carla would get it, maybe suggest a tweak, as opposed to Gordy's, I'm not making that fucking shot, it's pretentious. And somehow, we all made movies together. Mazursky had us in stitches all through rehearsal with his repertoire of funny stories, all beautifully delivered. He wanted me to wear a ponytail for the role, as was fashionable among some Californians then. I didn't want to, but he was the director, and I wanted him to be happy and call all the shots. I wore the ponytail. I liked Bet, and the more I got to know her, I liked her even more. Bet was forever talking character and motivation with Mazursky, who seemed to enjoy the constant analysis, which I found a waste of time. Mazursky handled it beautifully. I sat, tuned out with a newspaper, reading the sports pages. When it came to act, Bet was really terrific. And she was terrific not because of the endless palaver over subtext, backstories, and motivation. She was terrific because she's terrific. She wakes up terrific. She doesn't need all the conversation. And we had fun acting together, and I was my usual pleasure to work with because I did anything and everything Mazursky told me to do, and even everything Bet told me to do. I showed up on time, hit my mark, and obeyed orders. 
I never saw the movie. I heard it was not very good. My guess is Bent and I were okay, and Mazursky was a fine director, but it failed because of weaknesses in the script nobody picked up on. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe with the Lunts it would have worked. But I got the pleasure of working with Mazursky and Bet, plus a big payday, plus the awesome experience of being flown privately by Mickey Mouse, a screen personality I'd modeled my personal wardrobe after. When I landed in New York, I vowed I would never fly any other way than privately again, and never have. How a non-entity like me could make such a pricey vow and have it come true is a tale for the Museum of Chutzpah. Then, in an effort to top my lowest box office record and alienate as many fans as possible, I decided I wanted to make a one-act play of mine called Kleinman's function into a movie called Shadows and Fog, a black and white existential little tale that takes place in Germany one night during the 1920s. Everything would be shot indoors on a set, even the many exteriors. One only has to study the fundamentals of bankruptcy law to envision the box office potential. So Santo Lacosta said about building the European city, which was, to its time, and for all I know, still the biggest set ever built at California Storio Studios. I found working in the studio for months claustrophobic, and I longed to be outside shooting in the streets. Brian Hamill, a still photographer and a friend who did many pictures with me, and I used to love to shoot on the streets of New York. We loved checking out the passers-by and all the great women. A lot of those women would stop because they knew Brian. He had photographed them or dated them. I got mostly male panhandlers. Brian's brother, Pete Hamill, was the first to rally to my side in print when the false accusation hit. His other brother, Dennis, also a journalist, has defended me against the allegations over and over. The Hamels were no bullshit street Irish from Brooklyn and no phoniness when they see it. They were quick to get what was going on, and Dennis has been quite passionate on the subject in the Daily News. Getting back to my movie, the downside of being out in the streets shooting is when the weather's cold, the traffic's noisy, and the passing multitude hard to handle. It made me long to shoot in a studio with its controlled lighting and sound. But in the studio, I felt trapped. Over the years, loved ones have said I'm a chronically dissatisfied person. And it's true, I'd always rather be where I'm not at the time. I mean, let's say it's a beautiful fall Sunday and I'm walking on the Upper East Side, maybe in Central Park with Sunyi, and it's just lovely. So I'm thinking, my God, wouldn't it be great to be in Paris right now or Venice? The fantasy that I'd be happier elsewhere extends to romantic notions of owning a beach house, strolling the beach, watching the crashing waves and staring out over the horizon, my head awash with intimations of a cosmos that's a little more user-friendly. In reality, many years ago, I did purchase this dream beach house right on the Atlantic in Southampton. I spent two years and a fortune fixing it up before moving in. I planted trees. I picked every carpet, every stick of furniture, every molding, finial, and screen door. I chose wallpaper and tiles. I made it the most beautiful house one could imagine. Finally, it was ready to live in. I went out there with Mia and her kids on a beautiful fall Saturday morning. The kids swooned. I walked the beach. The stars came out. I fell asleep to the gentle sound of the waves lapping on the shore. The following day, I drove back to Manhattan, sold the place, and never returned. 
Who wants to hear waves lapping on the shore when you're trying to sleep? Two years in the making, one night, and I knew walking the sandy beach and staring over the ocean at the horizon wasn't for me. Frankly, I didn't even like the horizon, although I never really got close enough to it to check it out. I remember a similar occasion once when early in our relationship, Mia had dragged me to her house on Martha's Vineyard on an exquisite fall day. Alone and isolated, I stared out her window at Lake Tashmu while she made the fatal mistake of putting on the second movement of the Sibelius Violin Concerto. As I listened in the quiet autumn beauty of the vineyard, the unbearable strains of Sibelius transported my soul to Finland, Sweden, Norway, the fjords, the vast ice flows and long, dark winters, and I experienced an intense longing for a chopped chicken liver sandwich, obtainable only in the vicinity of 54th Street. The filming of Shadows and Fog came off without a hitch, except for the movie. The executives gathered in the screening room to see it for the first time, a ritual usually followed by either exaggerated euphoria or polite insincerity extolling my prowess as a filmmaker. When the lights went on after the screening ended, the four or five suits sat immobile as if they had all been paralyzed by curare. With visions of their investment ebbing to black like a fade-out, they finally stirred and managed to give voice to a reaction. The most lucid among them piped up with, Well, you certainly surprise us every new film, the words bunching up in his throat. The next move would have been for one of them to produce my contract from his pocket and run it through the paper shredder. Certain they were educated men, I expected a mix of philosophical observations followed by a discussion of the obvious existential motifs of the film. Instead, I discerned what sounded like Hebrew imprecations, and a few of them had to be restrained. I thought I heard Eric Pleskow in Orion Head say that he lived nearby and owned a machete. While the critical response to the film was reserved, there was no truth to the rumor the projectionist at the movie house rushed to the sea with the print and hurled it in. If I recall correctly, there may have even been a rather supportive review in the Poultryman's Journal. Not wanting to throw good money after bad, Orion opted for a limited ad campaign comprised of a few discreet curb stencils. I made my final movie with Mia, Husbands and Wives, And as you now know, before the shooting ended, a series of Polaroids discovered in my apartment would change the course of Western civilization, or if not that, my predicted lifespan. The movie was one of my favorites because I paid no attention to the art of filmmaking. I couldn't care less about all the rules of jump cutting, screen direction, or anything else that gives a film a polished look. Much was shot handheld, lots of improvising, The end result was a movie with some energy and great performances by everybody. As I never see my movies after I finish them, I haven't seen it in years. Whether I'd still be as high on it as I was then, I don't know, and I don't want to find out. I took you through the details of the to-do wherein Mia embarked on an Ahab-like quest for revenge. How did I get through the ordeal? And it was an ordeal falsely accused, hideous press, enormous legal expenses. I spent millions trying to see my daughter Dylan to get a less biased judge. 
couldn't swing it. Meantime, Mia went to another court to try and have my adoption of Dylan and Moses voided. But that judge, or woman, saw through her immediately. After a few weeks in court, it became painfully obvious to Mia this was not a judge she would be able to calm. And so she quietly folded her tent and receded. As for me, apart from not going out in public without a fake nose and glasses, I simply went about my business and worked. I worked while stalked, vilified, and smeared. Being innocent, I felt it's not my problem. Let them carry on. I'm not going to sacrifice precious work time over a bad call savage hordes are dining out on. Playing second base in the PAL as a boy, I had gotten some bad calls from umpires, and I lived. So this was yet another. I'd get through it. The trick was to accept the bad calls and move on. I played jazz every week never missing a session. I wrote and put on a play off-Broadway in an evening of one actors along with David Mamet and Elaine May. I did a movie. I toured Europe with my jazz band, all the while an ostrich when it came to reading or hearing any of the nonsense about my private life. And by ostrich, I mean I never ever read or saw a single thing about me for the year or a year and a half the onslaught went on. Knowing I'd be smeared, I limited what I read in the papers, confining myself basically to the cargo arrivals. All over TV were talking heads, experts of all sorts exchanging theories and misinformation about an event that never took place. Confidently, they paraded their insights and told it like it was. I quickly gave up on the news and talk shows, watched sports and movies, and as always, worked, wrote. The obviousness of the false accusation I knew would become clear to any who cared to pursue the matter in detail, and the whole thing would eventually straighten out. There were still ones out there who didn't get it, who despite all logic for one reason or another didn't seem to want to get it. Nothing could stir them from the idea that I'd raped Mia's underage backward child or married my daughter or molested Dylan. I had faith that in due time, Common sense, reason, and the evidence would descend upon even the most phlegmatic mouth breather. But I also picked Hillary to win. Meanwhile, Sunyi and I adopted two girls at their birth, a Korean and an American. And by the way, before they just hand over two children, especially girls, to a man who's been accused of child molestation, two separate judges check you out pretty thoroughly to make sure they're not giving two infants to a predator. Because the allegations upon the judge's scrutiny were so clearly unfounded, we had no problem adopting. I'm happy to report both girls have grown up unharmed by their alleged demonic father and are both in college, and the judge's decision to sanction the adoptions proved sound. After having vowed to live in the penthouse forever, we moved. Because with our first child and a nanny, the penthouse was too small. We moved into a grand mansion on 92nd Street, a 20,000-square-foot stunning mansion, which was not too small, but too big. The living room, at least we thought it was the living room, was a huge ballroom that we filled with furniture, sofas, conversation areas, a piano. There was a billiard room, bedrooms, kitchens, two elevators. God, it was enormous. 
Later, a lady who had been raised in the house and who now lived on Fifth Avenue, Mrs. Douglas Dillon, the widow of the ex-secretary of the Treasury, asked if she could walk through to have a nostalgic look. And of course, we said yes. Only then did we learn her family had kept the enormous living room empty, doors shut, and only used it for large parties when they put up tables and chairs. Meanwhile, we'd have friends over and peregrinate all over the room, going from one conversation area to another, trying to employ the space. We lived there a few years and moved out. We then lived two years in a ratty sublet, which had formerly been a rendezvous pad for two illicit lovers till the man murdered the woman's husband. The Long Island contractor who beat the poor spouse's head in as he slept. The lurid press, the TV versions, you must have heard of it. Finally, we found the perfect house for us, and being more experienced than when we left the penthouse, we knew what we needed and what we didn't. A house is very different from an apartment. With an apartment in New York, you have many more conveniences, but in a house, you're autonomous. You can work on it how and when you please, and you don't need board approval for every move you make. You don't wake up one morning and look out your window to find scaffolding's been put up and will be blocking your view for three months or the water will be turned off all day so we advise you to fill up some pots. Or most of all, if you're in a co-op, the president and his henchmen have to approve the person you finally found who wants to buy it. These indignities don't obtain in the house. You're on your own, for better or worse. And while there's no doorman to get you a cab when it's five below zero in January, or shovel the snow so you don't get sued when some stroller fractures his pelvis in front of your sidewalk because you were too fatigued to clear it, you don't have to ride up and down in an elevator with some tenant who took a bath in replique and pretend her Pekingese isn't creepy. We have the most beautiful, lovely, perfect townhouse you can imagine, built over 125 years ago with lots of original detail, many fireplaces, and a sweet garden. Every morning, I clump down the stairs, mysteriously hungover since I don't drink, open the blinds on the ground floor, and there's New York City in all its Runyon-esque vitality. If I'm lucky with the weather, it's gray and misty, and in my mind, I hear the strains of Street Scene by Alfred Newman. And I tell myself I actually own a small piece of this legendary island. And I think of the taxes on the property, and my arthritis sets in. In Annie Hall, I had to decide on which block to have Annie and Alvy live. And I picked a block I thought was tree-lined and photogenic, the most beautiful on the Upper East Side. And now I live there right across the street from where Annie Hall lived. So Sunni and I continued with our lives. She now a mother, aggravating appropriately over every little hiccup in our daughter's daily routines and seeing to it that they grow up adept in art, French, and music, and me teaching them how to figure the point spread. I continued making motion pictures, thinking the ordeal of false accusation had been laid to rest forever by all the investigations, which were definitive and unanimous. Little did I know, once smeared, always vulnerable. Originally, I had planned to make Manhattan Murder Mystery with me and Mia, but relations had since curdled into Roquefort cheese, and of course it was obvious we would never work together again. 
Mia surprised everybody by wanting to do the movie and threatened to sue me if I didn't use her in the part. This after swearing to the world, I raped, molested both Sunyi and Dylan. I guess acting was in her blood. Anyhow, I hired Keaton, and she flew east, and it was like old times. For me, it was a totally self-indulgent movie. I grew up loving murder mysteries where the lead character snapped off the one-liners, where the comic was cowardly and amusing, and his leading lady was more adventurous and got them into trouble. I loved actresses who could not only stand up and trade one-liners with their male partners, but often squelch them. And Keaton could always top me. It's one of the best films I ever made. Amusing, good story, good gags, unpretentious, and it massaged my need to be in one of those films I was weaned on. Keaton and I played a sophisticated twosome living in Manhattan and sinking deeper and deeper into a mystery. There were no existential themes, no tragic climaxes, no messages to chew over. It was strictly an airplane read. By now you've probably figured I'm not one of those directorial geniuses who said is always alive with passion, with crises, temperamental outbursts, probably because my nature is quiet and I am writer and director and control the whole works and we never hire actors who are trouble no matter how brilliant they are. Anyhow, if I had to name a time of my life that was happy, I guess I would say those next years. I adored Sunyi, and despite the huge amount of flack I got for pursuing her, it was worth every second of it. Sometimes, when the going got rough and I was maligned everywhere, I was asked if I had known the outcome, do I ever wish I never took up with Sunyi? I always answered I'd do it again in a heartbeat, and the most satisfying achievement of my life is not my movies, but that I was able to liberate Sunyi from a terrible situation and provide her with an opportunity to flower and realize her potential, and she would never have to eat a bar of soap or long for a hug or get hit with a phone again. Since Mia and I had not been the lovers the public imagined, I had been very ripe for a more meaningful relationship. Could have been some actress, a secretary, a dental hygienist who liked Swedish movies. Of course, with my flair for Sapuka, it was Sunyi. So yes, my loving her did not conform to Robert's rules of order, but we both adored every second of our 25 years together. I remember when she was very young and I first spoke to her and asked her what she wanted to be, and she said, a boss. And I said, a boss of what? And she said, it doesn't matter as long as I'm the boss. I don't want to say which of us actually calls the shots, but let me put it this way. I'm the one that gets an allowance. She runs the house, raises the kids, and plans our social life. We travel and have spent long periods of time abroad. Paris, Italy, Spain, the French Riviera, summers in London, Newport. Sounds good. But the age difference, you say, what do you talk about? Everything. For instance, I may ask... As someone underage who's been raped and is retarded, what are your views on the economy? And if she's too young to know who I mean when I bring up Ouija or Leo de Rocha, I fill her in. And do we fight? Soon you will be the first to tell you in over 20 years of marriage and the many disagreements we've had, I have never once been right on a single issue. When I first started going out with her, she said a very sad thing to me. She said, my whole life, I've never been anyone's top priority. I, who had been the top priority of a large extended family, the apple of many loving eyes, tried to put myself in Sunyi's place and decided to make her my top priority. 
I decided I would dote on her, wait on her, spoil her, celebrate her, never deny her anything she wanted, and somehow try and make up for the horrific first 22 years of her life. She has no problem with this arrangement, allowing me the privilege of indulging her every whim around the clock. Out of a necessity to stay alive in the streets at five, she has grown up hyper-competent, while I can't figure out how to use a swizzle stick. Yet, she respects me as someone who can be funny, if nothing else, and considers me some kind of savant. I forget the full term. What do we do for fun, for pleasure? For pure enjoyment, I guess I'd say Sunyi when not overwhelmed bringing up two girls whose provenience is unknown to us, but it's clear there's bloodlines to the Jukes. She likes to read, go to the theater, museums, movies, to shop, to hunt down bargains, sample sales. The sheer joy of getting a $500 item for 100 sends her through the roof. So someday I expect her to come home with a tractor we don't need because it was marked down. As for me, I enjoy going to doctors, having my blood pressure checked, posing for x-rays, hearing that I'm fine, and the dark spot on my white shirt is from my ballpoint pen, not a melanoma. Here's a typical day. Used to include taking the kids to school, but now that they're in college, the roles have reversed, and I need them to help me get the picture back on the TV after I've somehow lost it into the ether. Sunya and I get up together early, around 6.30. We eat breakfast and do some exercising. She's very exercise-minded, and over the course of the week, between the treadmill and yoga class and gyrotonics and exercise class and Pilates, she's fitted as a Navy SEAL. I do the treadmill and pull rubber bands to maintain a build equal to any Giacometti sculpture. So Sunya and I exercise, and then she does family business, the kids, their schools, summer work plans, the household help, checking all the bills, return calls, sets up our dinner dates. She reads pretty much the whole New York Times. Sunya and I are constantly clipping articles for one another that we think will be of interest or funny to read. I write, then we have lunch together and see if we can find a fresh topic to quarrel over. I write after lunch, and she either has more domestic stuff to do or she's got free time. She goes to a museum with a friend or maybe a film or maybe we take a walk. Later, she puts on the earmuffs. Airport workers use the blackout jet wine, and I practice my clarinet. Frequently, we meet friends at a restaurant, or if we stay home, she reads, and I watch sports on TV or A Streetcar Named Desire if it's on Turner Classic Movies. Streetcar is the finest work of art in my lifetime, and I never miss it when it's on. Problem is, the film version is so definitive that any production pales by comparison. Same trouble with the movie Born Yesterday. The ultimate version was done with Judy Holliday and Broderick Crawford. I found her the greatest screen comedian ever. Maybe if Elaine May had made more movies. Diane Keaton is, of course, right up there with the best of them. But I must say, contrary to popular taste... I enjoyed, but didn't go crazy over Carol Lombard. Again, it's not that I disliked her, but I didn't laugh at her. I found Eve Arden kind of funny, and Alison Skipworth, and Marie Dressler. For whatever reason, I, I never laughed at some of the more highly touted female comic stars. Of course, Jean Harlow is great. But listening to me babbling, sorry. And so, after Sunni and I got together and the mushroom cloud settled, and I was enjoying a real marriage, a real love relationship for the first time in my life, 
I continued to make films, which I will touch on till this paradise was once again invaded by fresh madness. I wrote Bullets Over Broadway, which I consider one of my best films. I wrote it with Doug McGrath. If it wasn't for Doug, I never would have written it. I don't like to collaborate, but with ones like Mickey Rose or Marshall Brickman, who are good friends and authentically funny human beings, it can be fun. Marshall is particularly bright, demanding, and full of funny ideas and great lines, and our collaborations came off quite well. So I decided to write a screenplay with Doug McGrath, another funny and very astute friend. Writing with someone mitigates the intense loneliness. Doug married my former assistant, Jane Martin, who had worked with me for over a decade. The two of them are close friends of Sunyi and mine. They're both very witty, as is Sunyi, and <clears throat> with my flair for physical comedy, our dinners can get quite lively. I came to Doug with several ideas to do together. My personal first choice was a political satire, with the idea for bullets lower on the list. I favored the political idea, and since I was the senior, older, more experienced writer, I tried to use my seniority to push him into saying he agreed with me that the political satire was best. But he didn't. He sparked the bullets and maintained his conviction. The gangster backs the show, but the playwright must use the gangster's girlfriend. To me, it sounded a little hackneyed. Still, I succumbed to Doug's rabid confidence, and as it turned out, I'm thankful I listened to him. As usual, Juliet helped me get an amazing cast. John Cusack, another actor who is incapable of a false moment. Jack Warden, Jennifer Tilly, Chaz Palminteri, the fabulous Diane Weist, Harvey Firestein, Mary Louise Parker, Jim Broadbent, Tracy Ullman, Rob Ryan. My God, with that cast, how can you miss? Every single one of them came through. Diane Weist won her second Oscar for me, and Carlos' photography and the sets, and Jeff Curlin's beautiful costumes. I was proud of that movie. I even got a chance to work with Alan Arkin, a great actor whose scene had to be cut because that section of the movie was running too long. I can't believe I had a chance to work with such a terrific performer, and I was forced to cut his scene. Same thing happened to me with Vanessa Redgrave on another film. I may be the only director that cut Vanessa Redgrave out of a movie. Obviously not because of her acting, but because of my inept writing. On that score, I replaced John Gielgud. Can you imagine that? One of the greatest actors in the world. He was the original narrator for Zelig, but he was too grand, too stentorian. It killed me to have obtained him to do it and then to have to replace him. It turned out he and Ralph Richardson were big fans of interiors, which went a long way to reinforce my megalomania. And while we're on the subject of replacing actors, I have to hold the record for the most unusual replacement when I got rid of Ruth Gordon, who was just too difficult to work with, although we wound up good friends and dined together numerous times years later. But get ready. I replaced her with Jeffrey Holder, the tall, black, dazzling Calypso dancer, who, you will admit, looks nothing like Ruth. The truth is, it didn't matter what the magician in the scene and everything you always wanted to know about sex looked like, as long as the character was exotic. Ruth was exotic, her acting exciting and flamboyant. When it turned out neither of us could compromise over her costume, I searched for another flamboyant exotic type, and Jeffrey fit the bill. Ruth and I parted friends, exchanging insincere hugs. Years later, Mia would bring Ruth, whom she worked with, and Rosemary's baby, and her husband, Garson Kanan, together with us for assorted dinners at the Russian Tea Room. 
I found them both superb company, full of great stories about great people, and the stories had great punchlines. Carson advised me, as Somerset Maugham had advised him, to write everything down because you forget things. It was good advice. I did not heed very carefully, and I'm sure I have forgotten a lot of the most interesting things that ever happened to me. Unless I haven't, and this is it, folks. I do write down movie ideas, but they're only a few words. Anyhow, years later... Bullets Over Broadway was made into a musical in the theater. Susan Stroman did a fantastic job of staging it. I had been reluctant to let them adapt it at first, but when I saw what Susan did with it, I was thrilled and proud. My wife liked it even better than the movie. Its critical reception did not share my enthusiasm, however, and it only ran a half year. Sartre said, hell is other people. I would just like to change that to hell is other people's taste. And while I'm on the subject of the Broadway theater, I was asked to be in a TV version of The Sunshine Boys, the Neil Simon comedy. The movie version with George Burns and Walter Matthau was Herb Ross's best picture. And of course, his two leads were superb. The TV redo fell to me and Peter Falk, a very gifted actor who was always fun to talk to and drove the director a little crazy with his many demands and quirks while I was, as usual, an angel. No back talk, no questions, no my lines. Tell me where to stand. Tell me what you want. I'll do my best. Sarah Jessica Parker, then not the big deal she became, but no less talented, played the female lead beautifully. There was lots of coverage which necessitated shooting each scene over and over from every angle with every possible field size. By now, you probably guessed, as a filmmaker, I am an imperfectionist. I have no patience to shoot scenes over and over and get coverage from various angles, however invaluable it is later when editing. I like to shoot a scene, go on to the next finish up and get the hell out of there. I want to go home, fondle Sun Yi, dandle the kids, eat my supper and watch the ball game. I really don't like to bother with a profile shot, an extra close up, yet another take of the stars arguing because maybe they'll do it better. I like making movies, but I lack the dedication of a Spielberg or Scorsese, not to mention their other gifts. I just can't get interested enough in the movie to shoot long days and maybe miss the tip-off or putting my daughters to bed. In a film, however, and most films made by responsible adults, they do coverage. So later on in the cutting room, the poor editor is not writhing on the floor, unable to make the story coherent. Some directors turn their footage over to an editor who puts it together and the director comes in only then to participate. Some directors like the editor to cut the footage as it comes in. So if something is missing or a new idea comes up, the company is still together and hasn't dissipated all over the globe. I like to work as follows. No editing till the shooting ends. Then the editor and I sit down together before the Avid, the editing machine, with its TV-sized screen, and we both begin at the beginning and cut our way through the movie. I've always worked with bright and talented editors. After Ralph Rosenblum, I worked for years with Sandy Morse, who solved a lot of unsolvable editing problems with me. After Sandy is my current editor, Elisa Lepselter, who I've worked with for 20 years. Gamely, she collaborates with me on the putting together of the film, sometimes agreeing, sometimes saving my life by fighting me, but both of us always with the same goal, to realize the original vision and make the best movie possible given the footage we have to work with. 
Lots of times we stick in music from records in our good-sized record collection. Because of the way I shoot, carelessly and irresponsibly, we are always facing problems. But I find being forced to come up with spontaneous solutions often leads to creative inspiration. I never would have put those title cards throughout Hannah and her sisters, except I needed one title card to get me out of a cutting jam. And to have just one card in the film was awkward. So I went back and put in about six and gave the movie a stylized panache. I never saw the Sunshine Boys, but I got a lovely note of praise from Neil Simon, who I've always looked up to and liked personally, and I admire his work very much. In fact, I think for all his success, he's underrated, because writing laughs seem to come so easily to him. The funny lines just flow, and they're damn funny. Still, I doubted the note of praise, as I couldn't imagine that, having seen the play done by George Burns and Walter Matthau, he could do anything but wince at me and Peter Falk doing it, but I pretended to be moved by his kind words and sent a thank you card. I remember the first time I saw Peter Falk, it was in Jose Quintero's brilliant production of The Iceman Cometh Downtown. I took Harleen, my bride-to-be. I was stunned by the greatness of the play and the production. And who was this guy, Jason Robards? He's off the charts with brilliance. Peter Falk played the bartender, and he stood out to me in a much smaller part as a very gifted actor. I raved about him to Bob Dishy, an actor who was friendly with him, and I told Dishy, Falk had a slight speech defect. Dishy said, that's what you noticed about him? He'll kill himself. I also noticed how wonderful he was as an actor, so it wasn't all nitpicking. Years later, when I worked with Emma Stone, one of the best, most beautiful, most charming actresses I ever met, I noticed she had a speech thing, too. She didn't sound like Peter Falk. It was more like Sylvester Pussycat. But I heard it the minute she spoke, and on her it was endearing. So I knocked off the Sunshine Boys, took home a buxom check for a gig, which allowed me to, again, sleep in my own bed, and moved on to do my first dirty movie, Mighty Aphrodite. What interested me was doing a Greek-style setting, complete with chorus and dusex machina. I acted with the very bright and talented Mira Sorvino. I loved working with Mira. If she had any fault, it was that she couldn't appreciate how gifted and attractive she was. I think she even won an Oscar for herself. I used to laugh at her because when we do a scene together, we'd be standing there waiting for the assistant director to yell action, and because she wanted to hit the ground running and be in her character immediately, she'd begin little imaginary improvisations before the action call. Fine, but she'd expect me to join her, and I just thought she was nuts talking to herself. Of course, on action, she was beautiful. We filmed in New York and Sicily, and the background was Mount Etna. I was told not to worry unless the volcano smoked. It smoked. I worried. Couldn't wait to get home. The beautiful choreography work was done by Graziella Daniela, and I did get to work with Helena Bonham Carter, a wonderful and beautiful actress who was smart and charming. I visited her home in London, where she lived with her parents, and her mother was a very bright shrink, and it was a really nice experience. In retrospect, Mighty Aphrodite is too dirty for my taste. I'd like to do it over and clean it up a bit, but all my films could profit by a do-over. I'd like to have a second chance with some of the women I took out in my life, too. But, alas, the boat sailed. I do not think they will sing to me. Context of White Supremacy 
that is our first audio segment. Uh, we will pick up for the second uh, audio segment. And speaking of singing and heavy-handed segues, that'll be where we pick up for the second audio segment. Man, I used my dictionary overtime. Oh, and I do want to make sure I get on the record. The weather tricked me for the day. Uh, the temperature in Seattle was basically 70 degrees today. No clouds. Beautiful day. You would think it's still summertime. If I had not been fooled by the weather, I would have been at the beach. <sighs> Tricked me out of a beach day, but I persevere. You have to compensate as best you can. Uh, the pavilion is pretty nice out here, I will admit. But man, I would have been at the beach. That notwithstanding. This is the book club. The number to dial is 720-716-7300. The code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate email is untiljustice at gmail.com I'll make sure I get in folks who wrote in today as well uh, let's see first email uh, written in from reading B and they have an actual B as an avatar save the bees no honey save the bees uh, so their commentary uh, Woody all caps, bold face print, Woody. Actually, as I read and listen to this book, it is almost insulting to any reasonably intelligent person. For I feel Woody is so desperately trying to convince readers of his innocence as he ends up married to what should be considered his stepdaughter. I was going to ask that question. I also think he is a narcissist thanks to his overblown success. I call his success overblown because I have watched several of his movies in my 20s and 30s and never understood how his work is so revered. But since becoming a little less confused, it all makes sense. You don't have to be the most talented if you are white. I heard someone say that on one of the cows programs and that is the truth. From last week, reading his dialogue about Harvey Weinstein was very interesting. I liked how even though he praised him, which is what a good Jew should do to another Jew, he made it abundantly clear he did not work or collaborate with him. To me, he wanted to make that point clear for obvious reasons. Harvey Weinstein is facing uh, new charges even though he is convicted and in greater confinement will probably be going to court again for similar accusations of sexual misconduct. Continuing, I will try to call in for there are so many examples of his attempt to downplay certain aspects of his character yet low-key brag in the next sentence. I don't know. I am actually enjoying reading this book. Certainly far, far, far. Three, really? <laughs> From a favorite read. It's definitely not a favorite read. Uh, but a clear written indicator of what it means to be white. Speaking of what it means to be white, I was wondering if you or any of your listeners heard of this story. 
Oh, this kind of deviates from the book club. We'll have to talk about this one down the road. We'll get back to that later. Much obliged. Uh, let's see. I'll check in with some of the folks who dialed in and then make sure I read the rest of the emails also. Uh, until justice at gmail.com. Let's see. Check out. Folks are either getting their thoughts together, uh, making sure they have anything that they want to share while they do that. Let's see. I can read. Get all our emails in. I'll share a few of my thoughts because I feel like I took a lot of notes. So I'll work on some of my notes and then check back with the switchboard. Number again is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Incidentally, the image that I have promoting this episode on social media is a picture with Woody Allen at a New York Knicks game with Michael Jackson. Now, even that is interesting to think about. Michael Jackson, uh, where he had to be charged and and go to court and all that. And is he going to be found guilty and blah, 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 and all this. And even after he's deceased, they got all these documented what went on in Neverland and all the rest of it. And look at Woody Allen chilling at Madison Square Garden with Soon Yi. Anyway, uh, and this is a picture of Woody Allen and Michael Jackson from like in the 80s, like way before a lot of the plastic surgery and all the rest of it, like darker looking Michael Jackson, Afro Michael Jackson. Let's see from this week, some of the notes that I took. Oh, right. Right from the very beginning, he starts off with doing films with Francis uh, Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese. Again, I've said throughout, what does it mean to be white? One of the areas of people activity here, in addition to sex entertainment, he is mentioning Woody Allen himself as a part of the foundation of white supremacy entertainment, uh, Hollywood and all the rest of it. Uh, and then all the people that he's mentioned throughout the book, Jackie Gleason and Francis Ford Coppola. I mean, that is the Godfather, the Godfather part two. with Francis Ford Coppola this is one of those like the more you know about these people like what other films have they done you know does racism white supremacy a theme in these people's work I think some people have said that about the Godfather I think that's one of the reasons Mr. Fuller mentions the Godfather all the time also with Francis Ford Coppola he did Kinsey that might be one that's relevant for the book that we're reading What's Kinsey about? Dr. Alfred Kinsey. We talked about this white man on the program before. What did he do? Normalizing all sorts of sexual deviance. Judith Rasman, she was a guest on the program in 2010, although we've talked about Alfred Kinsey many, many times on the program normalizing, and I mean all types, bestiality, normalizing sexual misconduct. And this coincidentally happened right during the 1960s where there were other things related to counter-racism that were also occurring. But they did a film on his life and you'd have to see it. I do, in my opinion, it does not represent Alfred Kinsey's work as wow this is total sexual misconduct and is that why we've got all this sexual craziness going on right now I was just looking at a report before we went live about a a man was found killed having sex with a horse here in Seattle a few years back 
what is white culture keep all this in mind when I get to the rest of my notes for today now that's Francis Ford Coppola Martin Scorsese there's a YouTube video where someone looked at patterns in his films man there's a lot of racism in these films it's not too many black people and then when the black people do pop up like whoa what happens to them and they looked at uh, Martin Scorsese I'm not I don't consider myself like an expert on his films either but Goodfellas Casino like I said you know these films even if you haven't seen them most people have heard of uh, like Casino Goodfellas uh, uh, Raging Bull most people have heard of some of the gangs of New York people of the departed these are like uh, Oscar Academy Award winning uh, films the television series Boardwalk but there there is a YouTube video that just looks at the treatment of some of the black people in or the black people period in these films like huh Martin Scorsese doesn't exa- and the number of nigra is used a number of times in his films I think it's right at the beginning of uh, is it the departed I have to go back and look like I said I'm not an expert uh, on his films, I think it's The Departed. It's right at the beginning. Oh, yeah, it's right at the beginning. It's right at the beginning. Yeah. Anyway, that's just the more you know about the people that he's mentioning, actors, actresses, directors, and all the rest of it. Uh, wow. The racism, white supremacy of entertainment. I was just talking about not having a television. This all would be a great reason not to have a television, especially if you have offspring, young offspring. Uh, let's see. Woody Allen talks so much about not caring what people say, and he has so many friends who are journalists, friends at the New York Times and the Daily News and other publications. These are major publications. It's not like he's in some small town in Iowa. You are in New York City. Having pals at the New York Times, you can get your message out to the war, even if it was just the folks in New York City. That's millions of people. And then that filters out to the rest of the world. I mean, that is power. And so he says all the time, I don't care what other people think. I just do this and do this. I don't worry about what other people think. But then he has the nerve to quote so much for that well-meaning magazine that had once described me as an anonymous little giggle merchant. When he's like looking at the success I had now, like mm, they were wrong. I thought you didn't pay attention to what people said. People are always going to be critics. Not everyone's going to like your work. Uh, next, he comes back when he's describing the scene where he got the affliction on his eyelids and was trying to figure all this out. Uh, and the word mumbo jumbo, that the, if you look at the, uh, oh, I'm forgetting the word victim etymology there we go if you look at the etymology of that that is racism white supremacy and what white people were uh, describing the language of black people that they had stolen that they didn't understand and just saying it's mumbo jumbo what they're saying uh, and then he continues on that when I guess Sue Mengers brings this uh, oh wait a minute Jean Dumanian sorry brings this non-white person in and I mean wow you he says, I didn't have to walk up the rickety stairs to his Chinatown office and pass the dead ducks hanging splayed in the ground floor window. So we just get the classic stereotypical representation of Chinatown. They've killed a cat and a duck and all the rest of it. And so my chick 
Fifth Avenue penthouse. One Saturday comes Jean bringing an Asian gentleman looking hoary with wisdom and direct from central casting. I now he may have j- looked just like this, but I mean this is a lot of dialogue in my view. They're just portraying this as just some oh my gosh, some really Asian-looking Asian guy. That's what it sounds like to me. Uh, and all the way again, just be she brings this guy up here like no, I got to go into detail about this really Asian-looking Asian guy. And then we could have been going to Chinatown with all the China-looking China people. Like okay, and he's married to Soon Yi. Let's see. Next, he gets the whisker of Pussycat. Uh, let's see. Uh, 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 uh. Okay, I laid the fee on him and he exited. Only thing missing was the sound of a gong. Really, Woody? <laughs> really? Of course, I was not better. And when I told my eye doctor the story, he said, don't ever let anyone put anything, much less a cat's whisker in my tear duct. And that is how I came to write Alice. Uh, just to have this. There are not very many non-white people mentioned in this here book other than black male entertainers and then this Asian male person and the children that are adopted from various war-torn areas of the white supremacy world. It is noteworthy when the few non-white people that do pop up in the book, how they are talked about, what's said about them. Even Bill Cosby and Harry uh, Harry Belafonte earlier in the text. Uh, Next, let's see. He says, on Alice, I first worked with Alec Baldwin, who respectfully kept calling me Mr. Allen. I first noticed Alec in Mary to the Mob and said, who is that guy? Alec Baldwin has been another one of Woody Allen's ferocious defenders over the years. Uh, he continues. He's done interviews and had Woody Allen uh, on as a guest. And, you know, just, hey, this guy is innocent and a great dude, super smart, all the rest of it. Again, he has lots of powerful white supporters unlike really anything I've seen I don't I don't remember white people caping like this for Bill Cosby Tiger Woods who didn't do anything criminal to my knowledge uh, it's did R. Kelly Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax I'm just not accustomed to white people caping like this for even black people that are innocent and haven't done anything I'm not accustomed to this maybe unless they're dead maybe anyway let's see hmm uh, next, the wasting time. I think some of the other folks had wrote in, in my view, it's not even wasting time where he talks about uh, being on the scene and they don't really come in with a plan. They haven't thought out what they're going to do so they can be efficient and get you got all these people that it takes to get a movie done, a whole army of people to get a movie done. Nope, I have to come on the set and mope around and mosey around and all this. And he says, uh, what scene is that again? And then the meter would be moseying at 150 grand a day. And finally, I'd feel what I wanted to do. Carlo would get it, maybe suggest a tweak and all this messing around. And I mean, (laughs) we've talked about you can be a white person and you don't have to be super smart, super intelligent. Woody Allen, I think we talked about that throughout his book, or at least I have. You don't even have to come in and, hey, we got a budget here and a timeline. Eh, eh. <laughs> we don't even have to do that. Just come in, waste time, and figure it out as I need to. Like, 
wow even the you don't he said repeatedly he's made so many films that were not profitable and were not well received didn't make very much money and all the rest of it you can be a white person and you don't even have to be good at what you do meaning the bottom line or what have you you can go into a film and know he's even said that you can go into a film and know this movie is not going to make money black people are not afforded that opportunity in pretty much any medium bookmaking filmmaking uh, anything that you can think of music making that we know this is not going to make money we know this is not going to sell and that doesn't matter we're going to make it anyway and do a good not what they call cut corners right you're still going to go out here and do the best job that you can for something that we know is not going to be profitable Jen to I'll be allowed to do that for decades that is white power uh, let's see there's so much in my view of him just bragging like I've been saying the whole time like if the element of the tragic arrangement what does this reveal about white culture and all the rest of it sexual deviance if that element was not here we would not be reading this book I would be like so not enjoying like to just hear a white man a white person period who's just bragging about riding on their private Disney airplane and Mickey Mouse giving me instructions and I vowed again I'm never going to fly commercially I'm going to fly private every time and was able to do it ha 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 like just bragging uh, but Mr. Fuller said that's a lot of what white supremacy is like that is a lifestyle having power over to dominate non-white people from a royalist perspective and just look down on them from the carriage or from the private plane and laugh and exploit them and have fun doing it like that is a lot of what white supremacy racism is about to exploit mistreat dominate non-white people and to have fun doing it brag while doing it on full display throughout this text in my opinion let's see he mentions more people rallying to his support uh, so he goes, uh, Brian Hamill's brother, Pete Hamill, was the first to rally to my side in print when the false accusation hit. His other brother, Dennis, also a journalist, has defended me against the allegations over and over. The Hamills were no bullshit street Irish from Brooklyn and no phoniness when they see it. They were quick to get what was going on and Dennis has been quite passionate about the subject in the Daily News. Are they like skilled at evaluating a child? like to know this child is bullshitting at seven about these elegant like really are they qualified to do that is he talking about me like even this I would need clarification so are they skilled at detecting bullshit with regards to Mia Farrow or skilled with detecting bullshit as regards to Dylan Farrow at seven like did they look at the video of her talking and say oh she's bullshitting she's lying we're experts All that aside, again, journal, I have to keep, he said that throughout the book, it seems like throughout his life in New York, he has been friends with and has had white journalist homies who have his back. I don't know about uh, the hate you give, but they got Woody's back. Like, your films need a boost, we got you. Your jazz concert need a plug, we got you. Accused of child molestation, we got you. Don't even worry about that, we got you. 
We love some Woody Allen. Again, I don't think R. Kelly enjoys that same power. Justin Fairfax, even Lieutenant Governor of Virginia. I don't even think he enjoys that type of power. I could be in error. Maybe he has lots of homies. He certainly doesn't have homies in New York because he's in Virginia. Let's see. As soon as, like I said, it's just bragging, bragging about his private planes, bragging about all the cool white people he knows, bragging about I built like personally. He's I picked every twig of my beach house and I knew Mr. Fuller even talked about that. He said the one thing individuals classified as white care about is dominating the Sunnis of the world, non-white people. That is what is most important to them above any and everything else. Uh, He said the rest of it, if it's accumulating things, property, cool gadgets, jewelry, all that, they stack it up and then throw it to Goodwill. Have a yard sale and get rid of all of it. Give me a quarter for this here rub. Got it in Egypt. That type of thing. That is consistent in the system of white supremacy. And you hear it right in the text spent who knows how many millions getting this beach house constructed and go out and pick all this exotic furniture and all the rest of it and then I stay there one day and I knew that was going to be the case he had already talked about being out in nature and saying oh I hate remember he didn't even say being out in the woods made me one with nature no 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 he said I was two with nature like I don't like this at all I gotta watch out for spiders and crickets and moss and ah I knew he was not gonna like this it's not gonna be like oh I love it I can sleep out on the beach and let my feet be in my toes rubbing the sand and nope that is not gonna be the case he's gonna wanna go back to New York yep one day and to brag about that experience that I can waste all this time and energy for a beach house that I use one day and then sell white culture uh, let's see when he does all this bragging well I don't call it bragging he says I made my final movie with Mia husbands and wives and as you now know before shooting ended a series of Polaroids discovered in my apartment would change the course of western civilization if not that my predicted lifespan again the sarcasm about serious allegations uh, and the megalomania here like the course of western civilization one accused child rapist is it that important it's so many of you Jerry Sandusky at all it's so many of you Jerry Epstein at all Harvey Weinstein at all Alfred Kinsey at all it's so many of you even before he got to that he says as I listened in the quiet autumn beauty of the vineyard the unbearable strains of Sibelius transported my soul to Finland Sweden Norway I stop right there. That's we just heard about that. Dr. Kevorkian talked about that. Our former president, Donald Trump, used to talk about that. The Nordic regions, the whitest of the white in a system of white supremacy. There is a hierarchy, not the uh, like meds of Italy or what have you. It's something about where the, these areas where they have a substantially lower population of non-white people. Much higher quality of life, generally speaking. I even mentioned Stockholm Syndrome. That's right there. <laughs> right there. I mentioned that at the very beginning with Soon Yi. Bang. Right in the region where they give out the Nobel Peace Prize. But, yeah. 
No wonder his dreams. I said a lot of this is just reinforcing uh, the tenets of white culture and what is valued in white culture, most principally dominating, mistreating non-white people. Let's see. Next. I'll share a tad more and then check to see if folks have thoughts uh, they want to get in. Maybe I can read some of our email as well. Uh, uh, uh. He says, I took you through the details of the to-do wherein Mia embarked on an Ahab-like quest for revenge. Ahab is a character in Moby Dick, uh, which again is another uh, legendary text uh, of white supremacy culture, uh, chasing this great white whale. Uh, And I think, yeah, this would be assumed if you're a white person that you would have read this book or at least be familiar uh, with it. And to to say that Mia Farrow has, has this grand scheme uh, to upend Woody Allen. I, uh, you again, you heard from the prosecutor in the case who said he found no evidence that Mia Farrow had concocted some scheme to get Dylan Farrow to make these allegations. Uh, let's see. How did I get through the ordeal? And it was an ordeal falsely accused, hideous press, enormous legal expenses. I spent millions and I said, oh, I'm in right there. When they went to court for the custody hearing, and they lost Woody Allen was ordered to pay Mia Farrow's uh, legal bills uh, and the judge that he said he despised even said he did not think Woody Allen he doubted if he would be able to behave appropriately with Dylan Farrow Woody Allen appealed all the way to the state Supreme Court when he appealed the first time around the ruling was upheld state Supreme Court denied to hear him Yes, he spent millions and no other judge believed what he had to say. They upheld Judge Wilkes. Anywho, uh, let's see. And again, this Woody as a victim. Poor me, hideous press. Woody Allen during this entire time in the 90s, did that stop him from going to New York Knicks games? Like, ooh, I got to hang my head in shame and get a a disguise of some sort. Or I got to sit up in the rafters and the nosebleed seats where nobody will see me. Nope front row and they're putting him up on the jumbotron and I said oh my god a child molester everybody pull out your rotten tomatoes and throw and bash Woody Allen that's not happening it's them showing Woody Allen oh Woody Allen Manhattan mighty Aphrodite wonder if he's working on a new hey can I can you get me in a film Woody Woody can okay let's get back to the game for Marv Albert no less birds of a feather flock together they say let's see and then a victim again he says uh, as for me apart from not going out in the public without a fake nose and glasses I simply went about my business and worked I worked while stalked vilified and smeared like really you're pointed on thick here Woody like I said I saw Woody out I didn't even know he was and I just remember as a child seeing this guy and he would always be the last person they show all these other New Yorkers at the game doing whatever they're doing like oh okay okay blah 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 and of course Woody Allen oh Woody what a guy sometimes with Soon Yi let's see and again, the metaphor, him comparing this to a baseball game. Uh, the trick was to accept bad calls and move on. He didn't even do that. He appealed this all the way to the state Supreme Court. They declined to hear him. He didn't just accept the judge's decision and move on. Not even close. Uh, let's see. 
The obviousness of the false accusation I knew would become clear to any who cared to per- pursue the matter in detail and the whole thing would eventually straighten out. There were still ones out there who didn't get it, who, despite all logic, he has said that used invoked logic, used common sense, used logic in doing that, which I hope people have done, especially when we're reading a book like use super logic for one reason or another didn't seem to want to get it nothing could stir them from the idea that I had raped Mia's underage backward child pause right there I don't know if she was underage when all this started now he said she was 21 when the Polaroids came out fully legal at that point I don't know that's what I was told underage adopted child could be I don't know not I know it's said that this started at 21, but I have reason to doubt. Again, if you have been dating so-called her adopted mother for a decade, at what point did you stop looking at her as, oh, this is just the child of someone I'm dating? Mm, This is a possibility. Like, eh? So that's one. Next, he says, uh, that I'd raped or married my daughter pause right there we understand she's adopted she's not your biological daughter you could have married or it's not even good you did marry the adopted daughter of the white woman that you had been dating for a decade that did happen no question there no use of you know crazy language or what have you Uh, let's see married my daughter or molested Dylan now that last one now that's just hey at minimum, I don't know. I wasn't there. Paul Williams thought there was enough evidence to charge, and he believed Dylan Farrow at that time, seven years old. Prosecuting uh, the prosecuting attorney, Mako, white man, he also thought Dylan Farrow telling the truth. I think there's enough evidence to prosecute here. I don't know if we can win or not. That's the question. Should we put the seven-year-old through all this? But I think there's enough evidence to prosecute here. We got a powerful white man. A lot to think about. I don't think any of that is illogical to have suspicion about any of that. I don't think it's crazy. I think even the use of that sort of language is meant deliberately to try. He's used it repeatedly that these people are loony, that they're crazy, that they don't use common sense. No, I can use my brain computer and think and start with reading your account of all of this wow all I can say wow let's see next he said because the allocations allegations upon the judge's scrutiny were so clearly unfounded we had no problem we being he and soon ye no problem adopting I'm happy to report both girls have grown up unharmed by their alleged demonic father all this sarcasm here like it does not fall on me well at all uh, and are there uh, are unharmed by their alleged demonic father and are both in college and the judge's decision to section the adoption proved sound who even knows we have to evaluate that down the road incidentally even if he did not uh, harm them at all no sexual abuse I don't have any evidence that he did just the fact that you've been adopted by this white man in this tragic arrangement with a female 35 years younger than him that is all the harm in the world for anybody let's see see if I share a few more 
Then I'll check for their folks, see if they added anything. Hmm. So Sunya and I continue with our lives. She now a mother, aggravating appropriately over every little hiccup in our daughter's daily routines and seeing to it they grow up adept in art, French, and music. Why French? Why not uh, Korean? She's Korean. Why not Korean? Why French even? Curious. <laughs> Woody Allen is not French. Um. Oh, and she's teaching them uh, so that they grow up adept in art, French, and music, and me teaching them how to figure the point spread. Uh, now, that's talking about gambling. Now, I mean, if that's supposed to be something funny uh, or what have you, but I mean, that's the way that I think of Woody Allen, like throughout all of this. He referred to himself last week as being able to play a weasel, and I said, hey, accept people when they tell you the truth about themselves. That, I think, is a more accurate representation of Woody Allen. I mean, all of it, just all the way through and everything that we've read uh, in the text from beginning to end. Like, yeah, I could totally believe that. Like, you do not strike me as someone with fatherly instincts and caring and taking care of like not at all. I could totally be it to uh, see it being some sort of uh, delinquency of a minor. Yes, let's teach them about gambling teach them about mob activity or show him some of his perverted films uh, let's see he says sometimes when the going got rough I don't even know what that means and I was maligned everywhere I think he's the hyperbole is extraordinary <laughs> like maligned everywhere I've never seen one single video uh, or image of him being mauled protesters at a Knicks game and not on that watch. I'm not sitting next to a rapist. Get out of here with like never. Not one time. Uh, I was asked if I had known the outcome. Do I ever wish I had never took up with Soon Yi? I always answered I'd do it again in a heartbeat. And the most satisfying achievement of my life is not my movies, but that I was able to liberate Soon Yi. What a word from a terrible situation and provide her with an opportunity to flower. What verbiage, my goodness, and to liberate her. I think race soldiers love it when they get to be Jesus Christ. Really like I am the savior. I mean, that is power. I saved her. White Jesus style. And that's double whammy because it was Mia Farrow, the first white Jesus, saved her from the trash heap in Korea, uh, Korea eating out of the bins and all the rest of it, running the streets at five. And then, whammo, Woody Allen gets to save her again, allegedly. Stockholm Syndrome, I just said that. Let's see. To flower. What is that? That even has sexual connotations to me. Like re- flower and realize her potential. Hmm. Since Mia and I had not been the lovers the public imagined, I'd been very ripe for a more meaningful relationship. It could have been. It had could. It could have been some actress, a secretary, a dental hygienist who liked Swedish movies. Of course, with my flair for seppuku, it was Sunyi. Hmm. I guess. Uh, let's see. I'm getting one more and check. Oh my God! Yeah, he says I don't want to say which of us actually calls the shots, but let me put it this way: I'm the one who gets an allowance. She runs the house, 
raises the kids, and plans our social life. We travel and have spent long periods abroad, Paris, Italy, Spain, and French Riviera, summers in London, Newport. Sounds good. All of it, in my view, is just bragging. The same thing, like I said, bragging, splashing mud on people. This is what I've done. And in uh, the, the having this non-white female who's 35 years younger, I cannot believe for like an instant, Woody Allen, who was a millionaire when they met, is getting an allowance from Soon Yi. So she is allocating money, your money back to you on a per weekly, per monthly basis. That is not even believable. Uh, check. Let's see. There was one. Oh, yeah, that was. Oh, man. See, I took a lot more notes. I took a lot more notes. I'm just going down to dirty. He used the word dirty several times to describe mighty Aphrodite. I think that's in the word guide when people refer to dirty. Sometimes they'll call it dirty sex uh, and dirt being not white. Sometimes they'll call non-white people, black people, mud people. I've heard that repeatedly uh, as though something is wrong with dirt, bad about dirt. He used it twice for dirty, uh, for mighty Aphrodite. And then when he says he doesn't like doing being a perfectionist with his movies and just, you know, staying around and you got to plot and plan everything. Uh, he says, I want to go home, fondle Soon Yi, dandle the kids. I thought that was so important, his use of the word uh, fondle uh, right there. Uh, that is normally used. Now, I mean, the dictionary definition for fondle, I'll give it to you straight. Uh, let's see, stroke or caress lovingly or erotically. Now dig the, the example sentences. The dog came over to have his ears fondled. Bestiality again, Alfred Kinsey. And then charges that he fondled a patient during an examination. Generally, or I'll say frequently, when I hear the word fondle, it's not someone uh, is loving it. Would, it would more often, I would think, be caress. Fondle is generally used more. There is a sense of incorrectness. Uh, I'm thinking fondled a child, fondled a medical patient, that sort of thing. Frequently, there's some sort of association with uh, incorrect touching going on as opposed to uh, a loving, gentle caress, that sort of thing. I thought that was really interesting word use. Uh, I took several more. Uh, notes down the stretch, but I'll stop here. Make sure I didn't miss any of the folks uh, who dialed in with questions. 720-716-7300. Uh, folks with a hand up, proceed. Let's see. Uh, you were breaking up a little bit unknown from the unknown galaxy. Was that you, sir? Yes, Mr. Renegade. Um, I'd like to get in early because you say everything I want to say. So I'm trying to cut you short. First of all, I want to bring to your attention the time when he said um, the exotic, I think it was Jeff. Um, I'll let you make comments on that. You can see something in that. But that was kind of, he got very excited when he was describing an exotic black man <laughs> I think it was a black man 
that's why I use the word exotic. But you can expand on that if you wish. The word fondle that you said, I wanted to mention that as well, Mr. Renegade, because, um, let me see, all the other ladies he took home and he hit the sack with and they made love and they had great sex. Um, but this time he fondled, you know, ran home to fondle his, uh, his wife. And to me, that means she wasn't willing to have sex. He doesn't really mention much sex with um, his wife. But he, he does a lot of stuff like that with the other ladies. That's one thing. Another thing, Mr. Um, Renegade, he is always boasting. And I can't, a metaphor, I can't take it anymore. Um, so I keep telling you to program, he's programming my mind. And a thought came to my mind to describe what I'm talking about, Mr. Renegade. Um, I'm quite an old guy, and I remember programming those punch card computers, if you're familiar with them. It was like a card, and you've got holes in it, and you feed it into the computer, um, and it would make the computer do certain things. That's how you program it. Now, when he's talking, my mind is virtually going blank. I've had a long day. And all I'm taking in, in the holes, are those sexual um, comments that he makes, like the fondle, um, like the exotic. So I'm just hearing all these <laughs> sexual things. And I, I've, I'm not saying it's bad for me, but that's what I'm picking up on. You pick up on other things, like the racism side of stuff. Uh, and I'm just waiting for him to say all these deviant things regarding sex. So he's kind of programming my mind just to listen out for these uh, sexual innuendos that he's made all the time. So I think that's what I mean by programming. Because I wasn't like that before. Like the first time, I used to listen to everything, but now the only thing that I'm thinking in is when he's making his sordid comment uh, about area number six, I think it is. The exciting thing. Um, so that's another thing. Uh, and um, I don't like the boasting. He he keeps digging up things. He, he said he got paid a lot. He got a big paycheck for this film. And then later on he said, and it was a good payout. You know, so even twice he had to emphasize how much money he made on this film. Um, once again, I didn't make my notes before this what wasn't in time and organized um, so I'll leave it there and I, I hope I made myself clear much obliged unknown from the unknown galaxy uh, I thought I said last week I thought that was a really important uh, metaphor you said you felt like hearing or reading this book was like having your brain be programmed it's like wow that's powerful so to get more detail about what you mean specifically and I had highlight I said I'd taken lots of notes this section uh, and I generally I prefer for the listeners to go first because I normally will have more notes I'm listening and reading the hard text uh, most people don't have a hard copy of the books too uh, but I had more notes than I had said I had highlighted that portion about Jeffrey uh, Holder 
Uh, he said, I have to hold the record for the most unusual replacement when I got rid of Ruth Gordon, who was just too difficult to work with, although we wound up good friends and dined together numerous times years later. But get ready. I replaced her with Jeffrey Holder, the tall, black, dazzling Calypso dancer who you will admit looks nothing like Ruth. Now, that's even interesting right there to have a part where this white woman is working he switches out this white woman and replaces her with a black male who he describes as tall, black, dazzling calypso dancer. Now that even, hmm. The truth is it didn't matter what the magician in a scene in everything you always wanted to know about sex looked like as long as the character was exotic. Hmm. Ruth was, it was exotic. Her acting, exciting, and flamboyant, when it turned out neither of us could compromise over her costume, I searched for another flamboyant, exotic type. He says that word lots. Just right there, we got one, two, at least two exotics for this black guy. Exotic type, and Jeffrey fit the bill. Uh, And then we don't... See, that's why I said black people aren't mentioned very frequently in this book, like I said about some of uh, Martin Scorsese's films. And Francis Ford Coppola's films. Black people don't pop up too often. I think uh, Francis Ford Coppola did do a project with Michael Jackson. I have to go back to Michael. Disconnected myself briefly. Uh, I will take that as a cue. Hold right there. Because uh, I did think that was important about Jeffrey Holder, black male, uh, and how he was described exotic and, and all the rest of it there. Uh, you have to put a pin in that. Everything you always wanted to know about sex. Hold right there, and I'll give more detail. We had a different person who dialed in. Three zero nine eight three zero nine eight. Make sure we get your commentary as well, sir. Yes. Good evening, Gus. Uh, good evening, callers. Good evening, listeners. Um, just briefly, I just want to. I didn't have a chance to um, listen on this, but I want to echo some of your sentiments that you um, talked about, and then ask about the rhetorical ethic that. Uh, um, Dr. Ani had talked about. Do you think, and and connected to why he's why he's written this book? Do you think there's his, his larger larger plan is to deploy the ethic, ethical ethic, in order to put himself in a, in a better light eventually? Messed up my sound again. Thought I was going to have it corrected. Uh, if I got your question correct, you said. Uh, and asking why would he write this book? Is this uh, some sort of to change how people are going to think of him? Just make sure I got your question correct since I had some difficulties. Yes, and I had mentioned that um, he was employing the um, rhetorical ethic that um, that uh, Dr. He had defined. And, all, and, and just, I guess, to build on that, it was also my my observation that he's very, like I said, the tone, the tone, of the book had changed because I, I, I was listening to last week's um, broadcast and it, like I said, he became very passive aggressive with his, um, with, with his sarcasm. He was talk, he would talk about uh, Miss Farrell and describe it. He would in one, in one hand praise her for her performance. And then the other hand would then turn around and say she was like I said, 
as you said, she went, he had he had to check the mirror to make sure he had a uh, that she had a reflection. So it was like that whole passive aggressive thing, which I've noticed to become more prevalent as it, as the book has progressed. Uh, I'll hold for that. Very passive aggressive as the book has continued. I would agree completely. Um, in terms of oh the rhetorical ethic the rhetorical uh, Dr. Ani's concept where they will white people uh, espouse so called democracy or justice or correctness or whatever it is that's seeming like correctness when that is not what they are about uh, at all uh, not even close uh, and I think that's uh, I've said throughout this text like you know he was dropping out of school and doing all this other incorrect behavior like there's nothing about what he says that you know to me suggests what they call meritocracy even even how do you do all these films about New York and there are no there's no representation of black people non-white people period like what sort of New York do you live in where it's just white people eating at these cool restaurants and having their little dramas or comedies or whatever else like where is the New York where there are no non-white people or they're they just as back characters to you all like uh, yeah it's uh, and even the like you said the, the passive aggressiveness with all that sarcasm that continued this week and it's sarcasm about something that in my view is really serious like this is not like a joking matter like uh, I think child abuse is something to take seriously uh, and it's all this uh, hyperbole and the sarcasm aimed at uh Mia Farrow, like you said, like he'll go from one sentence, it's, oh, she's amazing and did such an amazing performance in the film uh, and then the next sentence, like, yeah, I gotta you know, check to make sure she's, you know got a reflection in the mirror and make sure she does not pouring something out of her ring like a witch in, uh, you know Wizard of Oz or whatever it is like, yeah, and and that that has increased, like I said last week I thought his tone was so uh, he had so much more energy. Uh, they could say, put some bass in your voice. That's what he sounded like last week. And then he had the audacity uh, this week. He had the passage because people have said he sounds kind of old and creepy, flimmy <laughs> in the way that he's narrating the text. I mean, he's in his 80s. You know, he sounds like what he is, an old guy. Um, oh, I didn't kill it. I said, you got to put a pen. This is important. We got to do this before we get to the second segment. Uh and like when you read any book, the more you know about you know the books that are being referenced, if they're using uh, odd language or phrases or rhetoric, the more you know about all that, the better the job you can do uh, in understanding what's being said. So he replaces uh, this white woman with uh, Jeffrey. It is it Jeffrey Holder in the movie? Everything you always wanted to know about sex, but were afraid to ask. Okay, now this is in 1972. My oh my god, yeah, you got to look at the cover art. I'll put the cover art up for this movie uh, next week so you can check it out. The title again is "Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex, But Were Afraid to Ask." Now, I gotta, you gotta let me give you now. What is this? I haven't seen this. I'll watch this before next week. Uh. Budgeted at $2 million, made $18 million at the box office. Smash hit by, you know, most standards. Uh, the credits at the start and close of the film are played over a backdrop of a large mass of white rabbits. The Playboy Mansion. 
Do you know the symbolism of white culture? Fertility is a reason they have the bunny rabbit out for April resurrection with uh, what they call Easter. Fertility in a system of white genetic annihilation, white supremacy. White rabbits, a large mass, and it isn't just any rabbits, white rabbits, to the tune of Let's Misbehave by Cole Porter. The film consists of seven vignettes as follows. Number one, do aphrodisiacs work? He talked about aphrodisiacs in the book already. He mentioned uh, Spanish Fly last week. A court jester, Woody Allen, gives a love potion to the queen, Lynn Redgrave, but is foiled by her chastity belt. There are references to Shakespeare's Hamlet throughout. Number two, what is sodomy? Ooh. Number two, what is sodomy? Dr. Ross, played by Gene Wilder, the second time I'm mentioning him in this book, uh, he did a lot of films with Richard Pryor, uh, one of them where he was in blackface. That's why I said, the more you know about this, you'll just say, oh, okay, yeah, this is all foundation of white supremacy racism, and what does it mean to be white? So let me give this third time. Number two, what is sodomy? Dr. Ross, played by Gene Wilder, falls in love with the partner of an Armenian patient, a sheep. Bestiality. Did I already say that? Alfred Kinsey? I already said that. Number three, why do some women have trouble reaching an orgasm? Alan's homage to Italian filmmaking in general and Casanova 70, Michelangelo, Antonio, and Federico Fellini, in particular about Gina, Louise Lasser, a woman who can only reach orgasm in public. He already talked about that in, in the book where they left the dinner table to go have sex out in public. Number four, are transvestites homosexuals? Alfred Kinsey. Sam Musgrave, a middle-aged married man, experiments with women's clothes. Marv Albert had on white panties. He didn't even say colored panties. White panties. Marv Albert. New York Knicks. Number five. What are sex perverts? A parody of the television game show What's My Line? Called What's My Perversion? Filmed in black and white kinescope style and hosted by Jack Barry. The four panelists who attempt to guess the contestant's perversion are Regis Philbin, Robert Q. Lewis, Pamela Mason, and Tony Holt. After they fail to guess, that contestant's perversion is likes to expose himself on subways. A second segment of the show is presented in which a selected viewer, in this case a rabbi, gets to act out his bondage and humiliation fantasy while his wife eats pork number six are the findings of doctors and clinics who do sexual research and experiments accurate Alfred Kinsey Victor Woody Allen a sex researcher that's Alfred Kinsey and Helen Lacey a journalist visit Dr. Bernardo Dr. Bernardo a researcher who formerly worked with Masters and Johnson but now has his own laboratory complete with a lab assistant named Igor after they see a series of bizarre sexual experiments underway at the lab and realize that Bernardo is insane they escape before Helen becomes the subject of another of his experiments the segment culminates with a scene in which the countryside is terrorized by a giant runaway breast created by the researcher the first part of this segment is a parody of Ed Wood's Bride of the Monster, while the second part parodies The Blob. 
7. What happens during ejaculation? The NASA-like Mission Control Center, ooh, that's a Welsing moment, in a man's brain headed by Tony Randall and featuring Burt Reynolds, who just passed away as the switchboard operator, is seen as he gets involved in a sexual clinch with a New York graduate. Oh, this is another one of those uh, old guys with the young female. Knowledge that she is a graduate of NYU assures coital success as he achieves orgasm, the soldier-like white uniformed sperm, one of them played by bespeckled Allen, coached by another sperm played by Robert Walden are dispatched paratrooper style into the great unknown these are the seven uh, vignettes of the film everything you always wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask 1972 this is the movie where Jeffrey Holder uh, replaced uh, the white woman I guess Ruth Redgrave or Redgrave whatever last name Ruth Gordon there we go yeah what is white culture we'll get to the second audio segment uh, if you have thoughts on the film or whatever maybe you just need to marinate on it for a second wow budgeted at two million dollars made 18 million dollars white culture follow the bunny rabbit indeed the matrix is coming out this fall uh let's see we'll get to audio segment number two woody allen apropos of nothing context of white supremacy and speaking of singing and heavy-handed segues i had always dreamed of doing a musical a musical for people who could sing no better than we all do in the shower when I cast Everyone Says I Love You, I didn't bother to ask if the actor or actress could sing. I assumed they do the best they could. I wasn't looking to make a slick musical or break any new ground. I just wanted a group of New Yorkers to go through four seasons on the Upper East Side and sing some old sweet standards when the spirit moved them. When I told Goldie Horn, who is a major, major talent, that's two majors, to please not sing so great as she was doing, she was put off a bit. Edward Norton, a flawless actor, had no idea he'd been hired to sing. Actors and actresses who couldn't carry a tune sang, and all I cared about was the feeling. Only Drew Barrymore absolutely refused, and since I was such a huge fan of hers, I gave in rather than make her unhappy or tense. We got a school friend of Sun Yi's, Olivia Heyman, to dub her, and it worked out fine. What can one say about making a movie where I get to work in Venice, to work in Paris, to work in Manhattan, and to kiss Julia Roberts? It was a treat from start to finish. John Law wrote a lovely piece about it for The New Yorker, but others did not whack so enthusiastically and criticized the fact that many in the cast couldn't sing. This, of course, was the whole point of the movie, but I guessed wrong. Not as many people found that notion as charming as I did. The film did so-so in America, but was a hit in Europe, particularly in France. Still, I had the pleasure of working in cities I loved so much and of showing Manhattan in all four seasons, each one a treat to photograph. That's why I say the fun of the movie business for me comes only in the making of the film. It's the act of working, rising early, shooting, enjoying the company of gifted men and women, solving problems that are not fatal if you fail to solve them, working with 
great fashions, great music. When it all ends and the film is done, I always judge it for myself by asking, did I come close to realizing, to fulfilling that dream I had when I was laying across my bed and furiously creating characters and situations? Did I get 50% of my idea? Did I strike out altogether? I always move on after a film. I never think about it again, see it again, keep souvenirs, photos, even own video copies. When Turner Classic Movies put together a group to screen and discuss Annie Hall and asked me to be a guest on their talk panel, and I love TCM, I said no, because I'm not interested in sitting there and dwelling in the past. People ask me, do I ever fear I'll wake up one morning and not be funny? The answer is no, because being funny is not something you put on like a shirt when you wake up and suddenly you can't find the shirt. You simply are funny or you're not. If you are, you are. And it's not uh, a thing or a temporary madness you can lose. If I woke up and was not funny, it wouldn't be me. This does not mean you can't wake up in a bad mood, hating the world, angry at people's stupidity, raging at the empty universe, which I confess I do on schedule every morning. But it serves to bring out my humor, not erase it. Like Bertrand Russell, I feel a great sadness for the human race. Unlike Bertrand Russell, I can't do long division. And maybe I can't transmute my suffering into great art or great philosophy, but I can write good one-liners which distract momentarily and gives brief relief against the irresponsible consequences of the Big Bang. I never thought having biological children was doing them any favor, bringing kids into this world. Sophocles said to never have been born may be the greatest boon of all. Of course, I'm not sure he would have said that if he ever heard Bud Powell play polka dots and moonbeams. Sunni and I chose adoption to try and make life better for a couple of orphans already marooned on this orbiting psychiatric ward. And that we accomplished. I'm a very affectionate father who enjoys kids. I always think that Sunni is too strict with the girls, and she thinks I'm too liberal. But Sunni knows the ropes of survival better than me. She's more practical. For instance... I couldn't last a week in a concentration camp without my buff puff. Sunyi, on the other hand, after two days, would have the Gestapo bringing her breakfast in bed. And so all the important things, the kids' education, summer camp, summer jobs, trips, doctors, tutors, lessons, and sleepovers, she does with Prussian efficiency. All that's missing is the dueling scar. I basically hug them, ply them with money, never say no, and only worry one day... They will kill Sunyi and myself while we sleep due to some genetic psychosis. Sunyi attends every single school meeting or event where I find them boring. I go out of a sense of parental duty, but as the teacher drones on, my mind is far off devising fresh excuses to avoid jury duty. I mean, let us say the discussion is about what the upcoming term will cover for Manzi or Bechet. Like it's really important I know she'll be reading Silas Mana or dissecting a frog. I sit dutifully fighting vainly the old ennui as the teachers rant on. And then when it's all over and I'm champing at the bit to hit Chinatown and vacuum up some ants climb a tree, there's always parents you want to strangle who ask questions and prolong me getting to my major munch. Is science class only teaching one version of reproduction or will there be equal credence given to the stork? Will the children be required to read and write to graduate? My daughter wants to be a suicide bomber. Must she take a musical instrument? 
Of course, you haven't lived till you've seen your child perform at a handbell concert, but it's worth it because they're so cute. So in answer to the question you never asked, I never wake up panicked thinking I'll lose my sense of humor, nor have I ever suffered from writer's block. But Harry Block, the lead character in Deconstructing Harry, was suffering from writer's block. I like that movie. And if you check out the cast list, it reads like an all-star team of gifted actors and actresses, some of whom I worked with before and some whom I had the pleasure of directing for the first time. I recall before we shot, Marielle Hemingway came by my cutting room and told me she wanted to get back into acting. She had become single, and the high point of her life had been the movie Manhattan. I didn't have anything comparable for her at the moment, but there was a part still uncast if she didn't mind a small role. She didn't mind, and I cast her, and she did her usual excellent job. It was great seeing her again, and we met again years later for dinner at Cipriani's. She was very much into healthy living, both for herself and helping other people. I thought back to when she invited me to Ketchum, Idaho, the mountains and snow, and I remember looking out the window at her while she was bouncing up and down on a big trampoline in the freezing yard, and she was this six-foot, beautiful, healthy, gifted, athletic, blonde goddess, and I kept thinking, if only Leanie Reifenstahl could be here. Then my mind turned to her grandfather, who only a short distance away woke up one morning, took his shotgun, put it to his head, and pulled the trigger, and how Louise and I used it as an excuse to meet and talk and were blindly in love, and how Louise was now my ex-wife, and here I was visiting Marielle and sharing a bathroom with Ernest's son, and I don't want to share a bathroom with a guy, no matter how many fine and brave bulls his father's seen die, and... I don't know where this thought is going, except that life is too ironic to get a grip on. In Deconstructing Harry, I got to work with Judy Davis yet again. I'd worked with Judy on Husbands and Wives and found it an unnerving experience. Why unnerving? Because it was clear she was such a great actress that I was always intimidated by her. I never wanted to say anything to her and give away the truth that I'm extremely uninteresting, shallow, and disappointing when you get to know me. Consequently, I never spoke to her, and she, instinctively sensing I had nothing of value to say, never spoke to me. So we did several pictures where I'd nod hello to her at the wardrobe tests, a weak smile on my lips, and then not see her again till she'd show up on the set. Action would be called, she'd act, always wonderful, always exciting, sexy, unpredictable, cut, I'd say, great. Let's move on. She'd exit the premises, and I'd see her again on the set later that day or the next or the next week with the same silence between us. Hire great ones is my motto, and get out of their way. It has been written that I am a Renaissance man. Of course, they were not referring to the Italian Renaissance, but the Renaissance in Govine Gat, where the indigenous mountain yaks returned to the icy slopes in vast herds. Still, in keeping with that cultural image, I decided to take our jazz band on a European tour. As a devoted amateur, my style was modeled after, read stolen from, the great New Orleans clarinetists like George Lewis, Johnny Dodds, Albert Burbank, Sidney Bechet. My problem wasn't just that I played with no feeling, ear, or rhythm. It was that I had no humility and played out fearlessly as if I actually had something to say. And yet... Audiences showed up, and when Eddie Davis, our true leader and first-rate banjo player, suggested we go on a concert tour of Europe, I, like a fatuous dunce who didn't realize how bad I was, 
jumped right in with the confidence of a true know-nothing. I practiced and practiced, experimenting with mouthpieces and reeds, never grasping. It wasn't the equipment that made me sound like a rooster on amphetamines. It was decided, I believe, by Gene Demanion, we would document this tour. Gene hired one of Filmdom's finest documentarians, Barbara Koppel, to stay with the tour and capture us on and off stage for a time capsule should the Smithsonian demand one. The result was Wild Man Blues, and predictably, despite my playing, Koppel made a really good documentary. I saw it, and I found it sharp, funny, accurate. I guess I'm prejudiced because I personally didn't come off totally hideous. I was, as I am in life, innocuous, but mildly amusing, and as for my playing, Barbara carefully winnowed out the wheat from the chaff, parlaying the small amount of wheat into a passable few licks. As any student of Heisenberg knows, with a camera following one around every second, being only human, one acts differently, and it's impossible not to sometimes lose one's poise and get caught behaving like an inept buffoon. Fortunately, through the miracle of editing, my boorishness was kept to a minimum. Soon he comes off nicely, and in a piece about the film in the New York Times, the reporter dispels the notion that I, being older and more well-known, am presumably the one who sets the tone in our relationship. But it is really Soon Yi who, in the reporter's words, comes off like a dominatrix. It's true Soon Yi has a very large and strong personality and does all the deciding on matters that impact our lives like where we live, how many children, what friends we see, how we spend our money. But I'm still the boss regarding any decisions about space travel. The jazz tour itself was a smashing success. We sold out every venue, and they were huge and beautiful. Opera houses, concert halls, mobs gathered outside my hotel, and after checking to make sure the group hadn't brought any tar and feathers, I greeted them personally. We did many encores after every show. Once in Milan, there was a power failure and the lights went out. And we played on in the black. We were much applauded. I received a plaque the following night from the local fire department as if I had done a brave thing. Of course, I played the hero in perfect Bob Hope fashion and said as the fire chief handed me the plaque, I wonder what the cowards are doing tonight. No laugh, but I'm sure it was the language difference. Seeing the New York skyline is always thrilling, and I got right into casting with Juliet when I returned. I titled the film Celebrity and shot it in black and white. All the suits hemorrhage when you say you're shooting in black and white, but then you point to Raging Bull, Schindler's List, Manhattan, just to name a few. Audiences somehow feel that black and white means a cut-rate product, but it's really an artistic decision. It costs as much... The shooting of Celebrity went off smoothly, and I remember the last day or so when Melanie Griffith, a gifted actress, had to sit in a movie house with the man playing her husband. The husband only sat next to her for a few seconds and didn't have any lines and didn't appear in the movie anywhere else. We filled out the movie house and picked an appropriate extra to sit next to her as her husband. But when it came time to shoot, she didn't like our choice. She said she'd never marry a guy like that. I didn't tell him. I explained she wouldn't have to really marry him and live the rest of her life with him, but she couldn't see it. I thought it was very sweet and so typical of how actors get so into their characters. So we switched him and gave her a different extra to marry, and they lived happily ever after. Kenneth Branagh was a privilege to work with, and I finally got to work with Joe Montaigne, whom I had seen and loved in Mammoth's play Glengarry Glen Ross. 
Judy Davis was, of course, great, and since we had now done several films together, I was determined to say hello, but I lost my nerve when she couldn't remember who I was. Okay, so for years, Sean Penn was always sending back messages about how much he'd like to work with me, and every time I'd ask him, he turned me down. Then one day, I sent him a script about this virtuoso jazz guitarist with a complicated personality, and finally, he likes it. Samantha Morton plays the little mute girl who Sean falls in love with, and Sean gets his first long-overdue Oscar nomination. Sweet and Lowdown was the movie. Santo had to make look like we shot all over the country, except I never left Manhattan. It's not that I mind sleeping away from home in a hotel, provided, of course, the sheets are of the softest gossamer-like cotton, and upon retiring, my wife presses her full complement of cells against me in a position Saul Bellow once brilliantly described as spoons. Since Suni and I became a couple from the first day she moved in with me, we've never spent a single night apart in 25 years, nor have we had many meals apart. We eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner together almost every day. You'd think we'd have long run other things to say, but as the weather changes all the time, we are never at a loss for conversation. Dinners were almost always with the kids or friends at some restaurant where Sunyi orders, ignoring all advice from the Surgeon General. I, on the other hand, for health purposes, am careful not to eat anything pleasurable. Then, at home, a bedside prayer where I beg God to prove he's out there by giving me some sign, like two or three winners at the track. Sunyi is, of course, in her bathroom, doing her nocturnal ablutions, a ritual involving a large jar with some eye of newt. Finally, it lights out as I embrace her and fall asleep smiling, thinking about how different things might have been if I had been born 6,000 years earlier in the Arctic and liked whale meat. In my lifetime, I had written gags for nightclub comics, written for radio, written a nightclub act for myself and done it, written for television played clubs and concerts and TV, wrote and directed movies, wrote and directed in the theater, starred on Broadway, directed an opera. I've done it all from boxing a kangaroo on TV to staging Puccini. It's enabled me to dine at the White House, to play ball with major leaguers at Dodger Stadium, to play jazz and parades and at Preservation Hall in New Orleans, to travel all over America and Europe, to meet heads of states and meet all kinds of gifted men and women, witty guys, enchanting actresses. I've had my books published. If I died right now, I couldn't complain, and neither would a lot of other people. The only other occupation that ever interested me was the life of crime, a gambler, a hustler, a con man, and I got to play a petty criminal in my movie comedy, Small Time Crooks. Small Time Crooks gave me a chance to play opposite Tracy Ullman, a huge comic talent who I'm sure you know without me gushing about her. Also with a group of mugs that included some truly hilarious humans. Look who was doing my material. Michael Rappaport, one of my favorite actors, plus John Lovitz, and of course, Elaine May. I've known Elaine since she and Mike Nichols came to New York. We had the same manager, Jack Rollins. I wanted to write for them before I became a comedian, but they didn't need me to. When I did my first film, Take the Money and Run, I asked Elaine to be in it, and she brushed me by saying, I can't, I'm wearing a neck brace. 
Our paths crossed many times over the years, and we both worked in the theater together, contributing one-act plays to an evening of one-actors with David Mamet and years later with Ethan Cohn. Anyway, she agreed to be in Small Time Crooks, and we've since worked together on a TV thing I did. My point is, she is one of the very few people who is authentically funny. What I mean is there are many who make their living doing comedy, many who are amusing, some who are thought of as geniuses when they are far from it. Some of the alleged geniuses aren't even good. Then there are the authentically funny, a matter of taste, to be sure, and we all decide for ourselves. I have no interest in inflicting who I find truly funny on others, nor am I interested in hearing who they find funny. Let us each enjoy our favorite comic performers, unsullied by superfluous conflict. For the written record in this personal document, let me simply say to me, Groucho Marx, W.C. Fields, and Elaine May are indisputably funny, with S.J. Perlman, the funniest human of my time on earth. Oh, and don't forget Pogo. Walt Kelly's comic strip was touched by genius. There are others, but let me move on. Anyhow, the bad guy in Small Time Crooks was played by Hugh Grant superbly. He was so elegantly smarmy, calculating, so debonair, a perfect charming villain. The film did all right. My crime stories seemed to please the public. Somewhere in what Tennessee Williams called this dark march, I got a call from Jeff Katzenberg, who asked me if I would do the voice of the lead ant in an animated film called Ants. Years ago, I had played a sperm, and somehow when discussing who'd be right for an insect, my name came up. Jeffrey told me it would be the easiest job I ever had and fun to boot. All I had to do was read in a studio while they recorded me. I had always liked Jeffrey and was happy to do him a favor. As it turns out, it was not easy, and I didn't have fun. It was hard and tedious, and I was bored, and when it was over, I vowed I wouldn't do it again, and I never did. Much as I liked Jeffrey, I passed when he came round with another offer to be the voice of yet another garden pest. By then, I feared being typecast. And we will pause there, uh, pick up uh, for next week. Again, I'm not really sure if we'll get totally done next week or if we'll have one more, but we should be very, very close to wrapping things up with Woody Allen's apropos of nothing uh, context of white supremacy number again 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate email untiljustice at gmail.com untiljustice at gmail dot com uh, make sure I get in all our emails in uh, let's see uh, different investor wrote in uh, greetings Gus number one rich and powerful white males married to so-called Asian females it was referred to as the Woody Allen effect in an article I found from 2009 e. Rupert Murdoch billionaire Wendy Ding age gap 38 divorced <clears throat> Mitch McConnell, politician Elaine Chow, age gap 11 years. Mark Zuckerberg, billionaire Priscilla Chang, age gap 1 year. 
Uh, Les Moonves, former CEO of CBS. Julie Ching, age gap 20 years. George Soros. Uh-oh, they got lots to, th- to say about him. Billionaire CEO of uh, then Tamika Bolton, age gap 41 years. Uh, Bruce Wasserstein, billionaire. Angela Chow, age gap 26 years. He died one year into the marriage. Woody Allen said that, like, hey, that is with these, what they call it, May-December romances. You could keel over and die any moment. So you got to have that will and everything ready to roll. Number two, the multiple descriptors used by Allen when discussing Soon Yi were fascinating. I'm the boss. Hyper-competent. Navy SEAL. Dominatrix. Too strict with children. Gestapo bringing her breakfast. I think it was done to reinforce the impression that she is the dominant one and Alan is some poor, incompetent schlub. Remember he said he had to get Soon Yi to come and work the remote control because he was too dumb to do that too? This all seems hard to believe given that she led an incredibly abusive existence during her earliest years in Asia and was allegedly abused physically and psychologically, according to Alan, for several years during her childhood with Pharaoh. Logic tells me that this person would have serious self-esteem issues and would be very vulnerable to manipulation. He states that he, I, would dote on her may have been part of this grooming. Mm. Number three, Jeffrey Holder. Okay, Woody, I apologize. I was wrong when I said you never had one black actor with a meaningful role in a movie. Again, the movie uh, that Jeffrey Holder was in, everything you wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask. Let's see. uh, Number four. Not one mention of a black comedian who he admired. No surprise there. I never heard of this S.J. Perlman fella. (laughs) The others, including the comic strip, I never found all that funny. Well, see, that's because you are not intelligent enough to be able to pick out. So you need the genius, someone like Woody Allen, to extract all the humor out of these, you know, writings and such. Much obliged uh, for the commentary until justice at gmail.com. If other folks have uh, commentary to share, uh, if you are on the line, start six one. We should have ample time if you have thoughts on the second portion uh, or if you just have things that you didn't forget. The only thing I'll share at the beginning uh, he mentioned everyone. What is the movie? Make sure I get the correct title. Everyone says I love you, which came out in 1996 at that time. Uh, and he talks about being maligned and everything. It's not like Julia Roberts and the rest of these big name act Hugh Grant, the rest of these big name actors and actresses. Are, ah, not working with you, child molester. Hey, get out of here. Doesn't seem like that happened either. But the only thing I wanted to say was. That film came out in 1996, and he talks about, hey, what could I not enjoy? I got to work with all these actors and actresses, great cast, got to kiss Julia Roberts. At the time that happened, Woody Allen was 61. Julia Roberts was 29. 32-year age difference. 
Now, that's certainly not a teenager. That's not child rape or anything. But I mean, that is right up there on the extreme end of the article that we just heard about the Woody Allen effect. 30 was it? What is just 32 year age gap? And I mean, a 61 year old with a twin. That's what I said when I said we want to read this uh, this book. He's so cavalier about it. I don't know. In a context like, is that something? I'm 60 and I'm bragging about kissing on someone who is young enough to be like my granddaughter. Fondling, put it that way. I'm bragging about fondling on someone who is young enough to be my granddaughter. Anywho, uh, folks that are with us, commentary to share. See, I don't know if folks need a moment to perhaps think or so, or they have anything. I'll maybe read a thought or through thought or two, and then I'll double check and see if folks have uh, anything from the second portion that stood out. Uh, let's see. Make sure I don't get past. Had so many notes from the first portion, I didn't even share all those. So I make sure I got that. Julia Roberts. Boom. I uh, says. Uh, so he does uh, his other oh, same piece uh, where he gets to smooch on Julia Roberts. John Lair wrote a lovely piece about it for the New Yorker. That's so many. These are major publications. The New Yorker, the New York Daily News, the New York Times. Like these are huge. Like I said, just the the millions of people just in the New York area, not to mention the tri-state area. Uh, and across, I mean, for the New York Times, people read that all over the world. I read the New York Times on a daily basis and I'm thousands of miles away from New York. Um, oh, and the metaphor uh, uh, investor just mentioned, he said, for instance, I couldn't last a week in a concentration camp without my buff puff. Soon Yi, on the other hand, after two days would have the Gestapo bringing her breakfast in bed. This uh, <laughs> people generally, you know, get really sensitive about uh, Nazi metaphors and making light of that sort of thing. Like one, uh, if Sun Yi was there, she would be dead. And that's just that. I don't think she would have any mystical uh, powers to persuade Joseph Goebbels, anybody else uh, to, you know, bring me breakfast or get me liberated, much less uh, out of here. Uh, that is total nonsense. If she was that gifted, she wouldn't have needed you to save her from Mia Farrow. Uh, let's see. I thought it just stood out to me like, man, he says, my only worry is that one day their children will kill Soon Yi and myself while we sleep due to some genetic psychosis. WTF. <laughs> like, what? He has so much, like, uh, sarcasm and what he would call humor and things that I don't find funny at all like what <laughs> why would they have some sort of genetic defect why would that even be in a thought like I thought he was going to say they would kill them for the inheritance or something like that like oh okay I can say that from what from some sort of genetic defect like what uh, let's see he has repeatedly referred to different white people as gods and goddesses. Uh, he does it again uh, in this portion where he says, 
where is he? Oh, okay. Uh, I remember. Sure. Oh, this is. I'm missing this act. Oh, Mario Hemingway. Um, so he's talking about uh, where they were married before. He says she was very much into healthy living before for both uh, herself and helping other people. I thought back to when she invited me to catch him, Idaho. Uh, the mess they have a big uh, COVID problem there because of the white supremacists, right wingers, they call them. Don't want to follow directions. White defiance. Catch him, Idaho, the mountains and the snow. And I remember looking out the window at her while she was bouncing up and down on a big trampoline in the freezing yard. And she was this six foot, beautiful, healthy, gifted, athletic, blonde goddess. The black people are primitive. Remember, that's how he described the New Orleans jazz artists. Primitive and exotic. White people are gods and goddesses. White supremacy right there. Uh, He says. I decided to take our jazz band on a European tour as a devoted amateur. My style was modeled after read stolen from the great New Orleans jazz artists, the great New Orleans clarinetists like George Lewis, Johnny Dodds, Albert Burbank, Sidney Bichette. My problem wasn't just that I played with no feeling, ear or rhythm. It was that I had no humility and played out fearlessly as if I actually had something to say. Now, I thought this was important. One, I just said he described the New Orleans black male jazz artists as primitive more than once. So it gets really stressed that these folks are not gods, primitive Neanderthals, Darwin, all the rest. Uh, Then when he's going to go out and do his European tour for white people, Norway, Sweden, Finland, he's stealing from all these primitive New Orleans jazz artists and the kind, like I said, you don't have to be a skilled, accomplished uh, entertainer as a white person. I'm white. And in fact, I don't, I don't even have to be humble as an artist that, hey, you're not really an artist. And aren't you, you know, making movies? Or, hey, I'm Woody Allen. And again, having people who can write and, you know, really give you a lot of promotion and publicity. Go check out Woody Allen. He's playing his clarinet. Oh, my gosh. Then he comes back. I, like a famous dunce who didn't realize how bad I was, jumped right in with confidence, with the confidence of a true know nothing. I think that's so important. The article that he wrote about the New York Knicks in the late 1990s, where he offers his support for Marv Albert, uh, charged forcible sodomy, uh, is titled notes from a know nothing Knicks fan there's so much that is extraordinarily suspicious any white person really anybody but especially a white person where they put so much labor into convince you know I'm stupid you know I'm ignorant you know I'm dumb you know I'm a klutz you know I'm a schlemiel you know I'm a schmuck you know I'm dumb you know I know nothing like oh my god you are super especially to hear this from someone who at the same time is bragging every other sentence about oh my goodness the million dollar beach house that I bought and threw away in a day and bragging about their penthouse and all the awards that they've won and 
movies and projects that they've made and European do you're just bragging about this and that and all you've accomplished and how many times you've been to the White House and then you come around the same sentence and tell me how dumb and ignorant and stupid and know nothing you are that is extraordinarily suspicious be very leery of any white person who just they gotta emphasize how dumb and stupid and idiotic they are Whew. dangerous person uh, let's see he says uh, talking about another journalist took up soon ye come oh this is from a documentary my goodness he gets the whole treatment soon ye comes off nicely and in a piece about the film in the New York Times the reporter dispels the notion that I being older and more well known and presumably the one who sets the tone in our relationship but it is really soon ye who in the reporter's words comes off like a dominatrix now the uh, our investor noted that word usage Woody Allen doesn't have dominatrix in quotes there are many other times like the, the uh, essay that he quotes when they talk about him as some uh, kind of low level uh, funny guy comedian person I just talked about it earlier today um, he had that in direct quotes like he saved the article you know it bothered him that they had some critique of his movies this time around he doesn't save the article and give us the exact quote where they apparently refer in the New York Times refer to Soon Yi as a dominatrix like I don't know like racism white supremacy is widespread so it would I be totally stunned if a New York Times columnist wrote an article and described her as a dominatrix 2021 yes I'd be pretty surprised now if this was sometime you know 90s maybe early 2000s or so but he doesn't have it in quotes <laughs> there's no footnotes in any of this he doesn't even have it in quotes like I would need to see this article to see exactly what he said all of that notwithstanding I think that all of that serves Woody Allen going back like he has an allowance I mean generally children get an allowance adults don't get an allowance so are you saying that soon Yi is the parent in the relationship and you're the child like get out of here Woody get out of here and you're 35 you get out of here Woody um, this serves Woody to say that even though I'm 35 years old and I just he doesn't want to be specific even though I'm 35 years older than she she's the dominant dominatrix is an important word the reason that I had misgivings about that being used that is a word that has a lot of sexual connotations like that is the etymology of that word they could have said you know she has the dominant personality what's the tacky metaphor that they use she wears the pants in this arrangement there's a lot of different metaphors she makes the decision she's the boss you know it's a lot of different ways that they could have articulated that she is the more powerful person in the relationship if it was the dominatrix whoa that's sexual connotation that's back to all the bondage and everything you want to know about sex but we're afraid to ask and Marv Albert and his white pants that's all of that get a whip and do some lashing and all the rest of it that's a dominatrix someone to boss you generally it's somebody a white person paying you to boss them around and maybe abuse and mistreat them that's dominatrix 
Let's see. Welsing Moment, Raging Bull. I think that's Martin Scorsese's film. I've like seen it briefly, but that's classic. I think that's about Rocky Marciano, I believe. Um, him fighting a lot of black boxers. Dr. Welsing Moment, for sure. Uh, let's see. And this one just stood out to me. Um, he says, Sal Bella once brilliantly described... Oh, make sure I get the whole passage in context. So he says... I never left Manhattan. It's not that I mind sleeping away from home in a hotel. Provided, of course, the sheets of the softest gossamer like cotton. And upon retiring, my wife presses her full complement of cells against me in a position. Saul Bellow once brilliantly described as spoons. I'm not familiar with Saul Bellow, so I don't know this position. Since Soon Yi and I became a couple from the first day she moved in with me, we've never spent a single night apart in 25 years, nor have we had many meals apart. We eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner together almost every day. You'd think we'd have long run out of things to say, but as the weather changes all the time, we are never at a loss for conversation. I just, I remember last week when he, he said that they snuck off out of the country to get married. This is when she's very young, like early 20s. Uh, and then they come back and they're kind of hiding out in his penthouse to stay away from uh, the paparazzi. He said they go up to the big garden, emphasized how big it was. This seems a little bit like they would have been kind of secluded. Like she would have kind of been with him mostly. Like I think he was saying that she was going to school, but it seems like it would have been a lot of just him. And for me, what, what he just said, like her being around him a lot, like a lot. I said Stockholm syndrome, like a bunch. 35 year age gap. And then the whole history, her being abused, allegedly even from Mia Farrow and everything else. And this is a powerful white man. And then you're just kind of there with him all that all day long breakfast lunch dinner all day long then you're on the movie set sometimes with them and stuff like hmm it seems like a pretty controlled environment he's got all this power wealth you're trying to you have to go to be dependent upon him financially to finish school and everything else I could be in error did other folks uh, have commentary that they want to make sure they got in Maybe her. Uh, let's see. Uh, caller at three zero nine eight. Yes, sir. Yes. Um, qu- quick question. Um, remind me. Did we talk? Did we have any discussion about how it was received in the um, major media? This particular book. I can't recall. I'm curious about that. I will do some research on it. But I, I, I'm just curious about how it was received and how they. Um, how they spoke about the age difference and how the, just just the general reception of the book. I'll move my life. How who spoke about the age difference? Like readers, readers, media, media. Like I said, all the people that he spoke about, the New York Times, like I said, the major media outlets. How did they how did they receive his book? How do what was the reception? What was the criticism? I'm curious. I, I'll have to re- I'll research it myself. But I'm trying to remember if we spoke if we spoke about it um, in the in, ter- in in the ongoing reception in the ongoing reading. No, we we've not spoken about the reception. 
uh, to the book. I know just based on some of the more recent research that I did, there's supposed to be, I believe, a documentary uh, that is loosely based off of material that's presented in this book. I have not seen uh, the documentary. Uh, I know some of the reviews uh, that I read where folks said, you know, it was kind of some of the same thing that, that at least I've said about it doesn't really seem to have chapters. So it's kind of just kind of a, a loose. He says he, to said he's been babbling repeatedly, uh, just kind of a stream of conscious him just kind of uh, flowing about his life in films and all the rest of it. Um, I haven't really seen like controversy, at least none of the reviews that I've read. It hasn't been like, oh, my gosh, did you see where he said fondle and all the passive? Like, I haven't really seen that where people have read it and seemed surprised. It seemed like a lot of the people that read it, they already knew because, uh, I mean, this is talking about, for the most part, things that happened 30 years ago, uh, some time ago. It seemed like a lot of people were already familiar with uh, what was going to be presented, just getting his side of, of things. Um, yeah, I haven't really seen, you know, oh my gosh, sh- shock or or outrage, that type of thing. I've seen people who seem pleased with it, who find it funny, witty, uh, that sort of thing. I have to, I'll get to see if I can find some of the reviews of uh, the book uh, between now and next week. Because I mean, they would be, fret. people are probably still doing reviews. The book is about a year old. People are probably still doing them. Indeed. Thanks. I'll do my own research as well. Thank you for uh, the response. For sure. For sure. Uh, Unknown from the Unknown Galaxy. Do you have any any commentary? If you're just listening, that's fine as well. Hello, Mr. Renegade. Thank you for inquiring. Um, I did want to say about the tone. Last week you mentioned his tone was kind of shouting, you said. Um, well, this week, I think he was um, speaking very fast. And once again, I'm surprised if he's actually reading the book and not just telling people his story, you know. Um, it's very close to um, someone just speaking, telling you a yarn. Um, that's one thing I wanted to say. Um, and then, uh, once again, his, his, his boasting... He's, he's just he's sickening. He's a rich man. He's a superstar, basically. But he talks as if he's uh, he's living in a hobble and he hasn't got anything, and it's a surprise that he has anything. Um, but that's kind of all I wanted to say, Mr. Renegade, on the last section about his tongue. I'll leave it at that. I hope I made myself clear. Tone. Very important, especially since we got the very author narrating the book. I thought his tone was so important just from the way he sounded last week in comparison to everything we heard before. And even this week, I don't think he sounded the same way he got once he got back to his movies and kind of in his comfort zone. Very different tone, although you said he was talking, seemed like he was talking a little bit fast uh, this week, but substantially different than the way he sounded last week when he was really in the meat of the allegations and the Polaroid pictures and everything about Sunyi and Dylan uh, Farrow and the court proceedings. Way different tone from Woody Allen. Uh, let's see. The one last uh, note that I'll get in. Uh, he said he was talking about small time crooks. Lots of, of gangsterism in the films and movies here. Martin Scorsese does a lot of gangster films. That's uh, Casino and 
Goodfellas, uh, Francis Ford Coppola uh, in the Godfather films and all that. Lots of gangster uh, movies throughout. Uh, and incidentally, make sure I got it correct. Martin Scorsese is the one who did the project on Michael Jackson. Anyway, uh, Alan, he says, look who was doing my material. Michael Rappaport, one of my favorite actors, plus John Lovitz, uh, Elaine May, blah, blah. He goes on there. Michael Rappaport, like, man, he was in Spike Lee's uh, Bamboozled. He played uh, Dunwoody, the racist white television manager. Uh, and in my opinion, that is his character. Like, that is him, real life, uh, his conduct, like, white man, racist, white supremacist, I suspect. Um, just all, I mean, just looking at... Pfft, and the, the type of films, roles that he has played. I think he was in Zoolander as well, which is an Oliver Stone film. Uh, Cow Bell. Anywho, and he was in uh, John's, the late John Singleton, Higher Learning with uh, Tyra Banks, uh, Ice Cube, um, where he played uh, Remy, the white terrorist who literally joins the white supremacist group on campus and kills Tyra Banks. That is Michael Rappaport. White supremacy entertainment. That's why I said, if you know more about these people that he's just name dropping and, oh, this person and this person and this person. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like I said, by the time we get to next week, I'll have checked out a few more of the reviews of this book. Uh, like us, because a lot of people have been like, "Wow, that Woody Allen is something! What a life he's lived! Wow, we did do a documentary film." That has been, you know, some of the response that I've seen at least. Um, but by hopefully by the time we get to next week, I will have seen everything you wanted to know about sex, but were afraid to ask. Featuring Jeffrey Holder, black person, as the exotic black guy. Incidentally, I get my second mention of Jeffrey Holder or not Jeffrey Holder boomerang of the week. Can you believe it? Eddie Murphy film gets mentioned twice in a counter racist concept. The first time around, I mentioned it because the late uh, Melvin Van Peebles passed away, uh, who did a lot of film work countering white supremacy, racism, Watermelon Man, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Anthem, Classified X, which is a documentary explicitly about white supremacy inter entertainment, narrated by Melvin Van Peebles. Mr. Peebles also did a cameo in Boomerang. I mentioned that. That was first time around. Second time around, Jeffrey Holder is in Boomerang. And he is also the exotic, sexualized, black male character in boomerang it's amazing like you can maybe get a uh, character type sometime like he was talking about getting character type as you know some sort of critter uh jeffrey holder may have been character typed uh as the exotic sexualized black person um yeah let me i have to take a, a quick glance at some of his films maybe and see what other films he he did before we wrap up uh jeffrey holder let's see actor okay now Jeffrey Holder the picture they have is him with no shirt on so that's one uh, he is the late Jeffrey Holder he passed away in 2014 oh he was in Annie <laughs> my goodness he was in Annie he's in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory interesting very interesting 
Live and let die. I thought he was in one of the James Bond movies. He was in Tarzan, second time around. I think this is the Tarzan with uh, the character that we've already had mentioned. Let's see. Let's see. Is that correct? Is this the same, the, the very same Tarzan? Oh, it might be. They've had so many versions. They've had so many different ones. I don't. I think this might be one of the later renditions, but at least the Tarzan franchise second time around. Are you serious? So they get, oh my God, so sad. They get Jeffrey Holder to be, you look exotic. We'll get you to be one of the tribal people in Tarzan. Like, oh God, let's see. What else is uh, Jeffrey Holder in Tarzan? Anything else of note? Dr. Doolittle, Porgy and Bess. Oh, now that is Dr. Welsing talked about that right there. Um, let's put all the black and his, he is uncredited. His 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 character in Porgy and Bess was Dancer. You don't even get a name, Dancer. His name in uh, Everything You Always Want to Know About Sex, Sorcerer. The next film he did after that was The Man Without a Country. He was Slave on Ship. He didn't even get a name. This is 1973. Slave on Ship. He's in Annie, which was a huge success. 1982, he was Punjab. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, he's exotic there, too. You get typecast quick uh, as a black person. Uh, for your entire career, you can be ca- uh, typecast as the exotic, sexualized Negro. Man, shout to uh, Jeffrey Holder and Melvin Van Peebles, long history of white supremacy racism in entertainment. Uh, we did our three hours. We will have at least one more session next week. Might be two. I'm not sure how much we'll finish up next week, but plotting right on through uh, Woody Allen's apropos of nothing. I uh, hope this has been instructive. If you need a film to watch, there you go. Everything you wanted to know about sex, but were afraid to ask. And then you can watch classified X2 documentary by Melvin Van Peebles and You will be ready for next week. Uh, We'll be here tomorrow. Neutralizing workplace racism. Hope it has been worthy of your time and energy. That said, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. We need a fully functioning brain computer to solve this problem. Uh, In addition to being sober, if you're going to be out and about, be alert. There was a shooting in Tennessee today. I think it was like a dozen people got shot. They killed one person like be alert they were at the grocery store not at a protest or anything just at the grocery store be alert Uh, if you see someone being hostile and rowdy you should be thinking this person may be armed in fact they may have a whole entourage of armed folks if you didn't leave your residence prepared to kill and or die exit if you're in a vehicle you are sober buckled uh we're trying to do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers and we are not on the cell phone uh we need all of our attention and as i said trying to minimize contact race soldiers badge or no all of that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with 
another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.